Greetings, ladies and metal gents, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1458 to 1471. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1458. Story number one. The raw, unstoppable human power of music. Written by Lloyd Le Diamond. We all know of the human race's rather controversial and explosive entrance into the galactic scene. After the Great War of the Seventh Moor, the Glathecker, Unirhoth, had surrendered a large chunk of frontier space to the ever-looming Colonti Operarium. Within this space was a rather strange star system, known as Sol-1, a mysterious yellow dwarf with many planets in spots they shouldn't be, no binary partner, and a large amount of planets, among other things. Among the third planet from the star was a young species known as humanity. Humans are just as strange, if not weird, than their home star. But the Kailanti ignored that fact and enslaved the entire planet with much, much difficulty. What they didn't know was that humanity had a secret. Now the secret wasn't a game changer, but it was significant enough that after the terrible conquest took the planet, as they did many others, they outlawed the reduction, or composition and consumption of the secret. What was the secret? Well, it was something unique to Earth. Many animals, apart from humans, practiced it regularly. That secret was music. Music is a strange concept for most galactic residents to grasp. Essentially, music is an art form that consists of patterned sound. This can range from sounds produced through vocalization, and in fact, humans have specialized bodily systems to produce these special vocalizations, of which they call singing. Dedicated devices meant to produce sound such as a guitar, piano, and drum or even the environment itself. To human, music acts as a form of emotional release and experience, one of the more powerful artificial ones, and exists amongst most other forms of human art that can feature sound. The emotions experienced depend on the sounds produced, along with the accompanying words or lyrics that may or may not be present. Music can also function as a religious expression, or a celebratory one. But none of this was the reason why Kalanti outlawed music. The real reason was that music also had an effect of increasing human production and focus, and acting as a powerful social bonding tool. Two very, very dangerous tools for an enslaved population to have. Unfortunately for the conquerors, music is too integral to the human experience to ever be fully destroyed. Human slaves would hum essentially a whisper of music in this context, though hums can be loud, musical tunes together. And due to the lack of natural understanding of music that Kailanti had, it was extremely difficult for them to pick out what was and wasn't music for quite some time. This difficulty led to natural human conversion often being punished, and ironically, human music without vocalization to be ignored unintentionally this lyricless music was very percussion-heavy. Now, what does that mean? Well, 
Here's a demonstration. Stomp your foot three times at a constant interval. Hear that oof sound? That's percussion. A hitting sound. Well, humans would tap their feet together in musical ways and would make musical pieces that could amp them up to fight. This also had the aforementioned effect of increasing the prisoners' social bonds, making them a bit more of a cohesive force. Ultimately, music, among many other things, led to the mostly bloody and brutal slave revolt in galactic history. The Galanti were crippled in that section, and humanity earned the nickname of the, the Bloody Brutes. A name so prolific, many people throughout the galaxy seem surprised to learn how small they are. The Galanti didn't hold Earth for long. Only 13 human years, or roughly 14.5 galactic cycles, significantly less than their average, and after Galactic Aid was able to make contact and prove that they were there to help, which for humanity was surprisingly simple, the humans launched their ever-so-infamous campaign against the terrible conquest. And we all know how badly that went for the Kylonti. Anyways, this has been Garthak, your friend and favorite blogger, with an abridged explanation on the effects of human music on the Kylanti's invasion of their homeworld. To all of you ship captains and harbor chiefs out there, if you have a human working under you, allow them the simple earthly pleasure of music. It'll boost their efficiency, and you don't want to experience the consequences of taking it from them. And as always, goodbye and good nights. End of story. Story number two. A fine specimen written by Shogun CDN. The blue orb spun silently below the cruiser. Captain Law cleaned his stalks while reading the reports. According to the records, this was an undiscovered planet and the Slurn were entitled to salvage rights. The populace had not discovered hyperdrives yet, which meant that they would become the Slurn colony by galactic law. Still, he was troubled by what he was reading. High gravity, large predator species, poisonous plants. Did he read that right? Weather extremes. How were the Sloan going to govern such an unruly wilderness? They would need the locals to help them plunder the planet's resources, but so little was known about them. The captain had ordered the crew to obtain a specimen for closer study to see if there was any hope of using these... Uh, humans. Suddenly, a klaxon rang out as his screen peeped urgently. It was a request from the detention center. He flicked the button with a pincer and an underling's panicked face appeared. Captain, sir, we, we have an alien as requested. Uh, you may want to come down, um, the underling said. Its stalks clearly focused on something else. Where is the security officer? The captain asked, curious as to why this underling was asking him to come down. Sir, uh, uh, the security officer is injured along with uh, much of the security team. I, uh, I think that um, he, he might be dead. Uh, the medical chief t took him away, the underling replied. The captain rose from his feet and started to make his way to the detention center. The klaxons kept ringing throughout the ship, and he could see crew members scurrying on their four legs. It seemed like the entire ship was in a panic. He made a note to demote the security officer if he wasn't already dead. 
As he rounded the corner to the detention center, a medical crew rushed by with an armored crew member on a medical sled. The medics were treating his wounds and the captain could make out cracks in the armor and the exoskeleton of the crew member himself. Purplish fluid leaked from the number of wounds. The detention center itself was a complete chaos. Bodies lay everywhere and weapons and armor were scattered all over the area. More and more crew members were rushing into the room trying their best to deal with the humans the scouting crew had captured. In the middle of the storm, the human was a howling frenzy of violence, picking up saloon crew members like they were children and tossing them aside. The captain recognized a slumped-over figure as one of his most feared and accomplished soldiers. He seemed to be missing a hind leg. He spotted the head xenobiologist and grabbed him roughly by his mandibles. What in the name of Harfi is going on here? The scientist had a fearful look, but the captain could see that their fear was of the human and not of the captain. Sir, 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 sir we, we obtained the specimen you requested. We, we, we found one of them in a state of extreme hibernation in an isolated area. Uh, uh, it, it did not wake even as we approached them. It was surrounded by uh, empty bottles of corrosive liquid high in ethanol content. We managed to, to bind it and bring it to the ship, but uh, when it awoke, uh, it, it broke free. We, we've been trying to contain it, but uh, it is much stronger than we anticipated, and its propensity for violence is off the charts. The captain pushed the scientists suddenly as a monitor flew at them, briefly missing them both. The human was even larger in real life than the captain had expected. It moved in an awkward, lurching fashion, but lashed out with the powerful upper appendages, destroying everything and everyone it came into contact with. The captain picked up a pulse rifle as the ship was being torn apart. You idiot! Our recon showed that the females of the species are smaller and more manageable. Why didn't you tame one? Sir, um... The scientist started to speak, but he was cut off by the security guard landing on him and crushing his stops. The human looked at Captain Law with hatred in its eyes. My boyfriend is like a ghost. It slurred. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1459 The Human Word Sacrifice Written by Space Paladin 15 Esteemed members of the Galactic Senate I understand why some of you oppose adding the Terran United Nations to the Council. When I was young, I too dismissed the humans as little more than tribal primitives. Their finest feat of engineering was that scrap metal cylinder they stuck a warp drive to and sent to Alpha Centauri. Actually, when you think about it, it's a miracle that that clunker flew at all. You wonder what they could possibly add to our regiment. Or if you can trust them. But perhaps a small anecdote from my time out in the Great Expanse will change your minds. I was working for a luxurious cruise ship where we ferried wealthy passengers across the galaxy. There were many who would pay a hefty price to view the radiant colors of a nebula up close and personal. And of course, we stocked up on the finest delicacies and intoxicants. We had enough talum cakes to feed an army and enough rinx capsules to sedate a Kaisian beast. We were a bit short-staffed during the height of our travel season one year, even offering generous pay and over-the-top benefits. 
It was difficult to find anyone willing to be off-planet for such long stretches of time. Pressed to find a solution, we reached out to employment offices on the most recently discovered planet, Earth. Before we knew it, we had dozens of applicants. The human civilians were all too eager to venture to the stars. After careful review, they picked out the best four candidates and hired them. The names were Mark, Terry, Amber, and Cyan. You could say that our management took advantage of their enthusiasm. The wages given to the humans were much lower than our other staffers. I asked Mark why they would work for so little, and he just laughed and said, It's not about the money. But I digress. The humans were the subject of many snide remarks amongst the rest of the crew. They didn't have the best reputation. They were said to be clumsy, naive, and undisciplined. This was not helped by the fact that Mark and Terry were found passed out in the dining lounge on their first night on the ship. Apparently, they had crushed up the rink's capsules and snorted them. That was a new one. I steered clear of them for the most part at first. But curiosity got the better of me. They were more friendly and more intelligent than the bawdy jokes would have you believe. We shared stories about our cultures, what strange rituals they had for their deceased. I never heard of a species leaving gifts for corpses, and I couldn't fathom why they would do it. But eventually, we began to connect on a more personal level. I came to particularly enjoy their company of the one called Amber, and perhaps even fancied her. We could eat breakfast together in the mornings and watch Terran movies together in the evenings. What little break time we had was shared almost exclusively in each other's company. So, as the ship's voyage came to a conclusion and the passengers disembarked, I felt a sharp pang of disappointment. The realization that we would be separated in a matter of hours was difficult to accept. All that remained was a routine trip to the nearest Federation service port for mandatory inspection. I decided to join the humans in the recreation center for one last game of Uno before we docked. Little did I know that that short trip would be anything but routine. The official accident investigation concluded that the coolant pipe in the warp chamber had burst. The overheating had led to a catastrophic failure of the antimatter containment field which in turn caused the reactor meltdown. But at the time, nobody knew what happened. Just that the ship had suddenly taken a nosedive over an uninhabited mining colony. There was no time to make a break for the escape shuttles. The gravitational force of our steep descent threw me against the wall and rendered me incapable of movement. Well, I thought, if this is the end, I just hope that it'll end quickly. I remember locking eyes with Amber for a few moments before the pressure knocked me out. And the next thing I knew, I was being dragged across the dusty field, away from the burning wreck of our ship. I spotted pale, fleshy hands wrapped around my torso and felt relief wash over me as I realized who it was. Amber had survived, but my relief turned to horror as I looked around and did not see anyone else emerging from the wreckage. The grim fact that we were the only two survivors was cemented as the ship exploded in a massive blue fireball moments later. The heat was so intense that I felt it sear my face, despite being out of the blast's immediate vicinity. Amber dropped me in shock, eyes and mouth drawn wide in that. I'm guessing 
was the human expression of horror. We both knew there was no way the crewmates trapped inside of the wreckage had survived that. I could only offer her my thanks for saving my life and some empty words of comfort. We watched as the flames died down, trying to process what had happened. Amber snapped out of it first, suggesting that we sift through the wreckage to try and salvage whatever we could. Luckily enough, we uncovered an escape shuttle with only minor damage. There was food and water tucked away inside. Amber did the best she could to fix up the shuttle, and I couldn't help but admire her handiwork. Humans are much craftier, much more knowledgeable than engineering, and they let on, that's for sure. She was able to get its systems running and its engines operational in the span of a day. I was ready to set off then and there. We could plot a course to the system that was take us in range of the nearest communications relay. The shuttle lacked FTL capabilities, so it would take months to reach its destination. But the promise of returning home eventually was good enough for me. So, why did Amber look so sad? I asked her what was wrong and she gave me a half-hearted smile. There is, uh, there's only enough supplies on board for one of us, she said. Her demeanor made sense to me now, and my tentacles trembled the sadness. I would take no pleasure in fighting her for that vessel either. We were close friends, but this was a matter of survival. Yet, I wondered why she did not take off without me while I slept. It would have been the smartest move. So, uh, I've decided that you should take the ship. Just activate the distress beacon once you're in range of the comms. And you'll be fine, she continued. I stared at her in disbelief. It made absolutely no sense that she would choose my survival over her own. The food and water in the shuttle was all that was still intact after the crash. Remaining on the planet would condemn her to certain death. But she said it in such a matter-of-fact way, as though it was the most logical choice. I almost felt compelled to argue with her for making such a foolish offer. What about you? You'd be stuck here, I pointed out. Amber met my eyes. I'll be here, waiting for your return. Don't you forget about me, alright? Safe travels for all. There was a finality in her voice. I could tell that she knew that she would not see my return, but it was a lie that seemed to be crafted to comfort us both. I boarded the vessel and left it off before she could change her mind. By the time I got back to the Federation command, it was far too late for Amber. My rescue team was dispatched, just in case, but I knew that it was futile to hope that they would find anything but a corpse. The incident became sector-wide news. Some of you may have seen the coverage. It is not every day a state-of-the-art vessel crashes and leaves just a sole survivor. I wasn't really interested in talking to any reporters. The grief and the trauma I experienced made my newfound celebrity status trivial to me. Word, of course, got back to the Terran United Nations as well. Their government requested my presence at a public hearing, and a feeling that I owed a great debt to Amber's people, I acquiesced. After receiving my testimony, the Terrans requested permission to build a memorial to the dead at the crash site. The council was confused by this sentimentality, but approved of it nonetheless. I wanted to understand the humans, and I searched for those answers for a long time. 
I still ask myself why Amber chose to save me all the time. There was something about that look in her eyes that haunts me. The way she hadn't hesitated at all. I learned of the human word, sacrifice. They have a concept of giving your own well-being, sometimes even your life, for others. Some may say that it is a foolish idea, but I find it quite honorable. The humans remember those who sacrificed themselves, brand them as heroes, and seek to keep their deeds alive in memory. That is why they build shrines to their deceased. I finally visited the memorial this year, all these decades later. It consists of a simple blank wall with the names engraved on it in galactic standard. There were 30 or so people there, but myself as the only non-human in attendance. I thought back to days long gone, recalling the human girl who'd been my first love. Quietly, I pulled a vibrant orange flower from my jacket pocket and laid it by the wall. The human tradition that had once seemed so strange now seemed intuitive. The gift was not to the corpses, but to the memories they left behind. It was a tradition born of love that outlasted death itself. Their sense of love and devotion, their capacity for good, is why I know that we can trust them. I don't think the humans can help us win the war, but they can make us a society worth fighting for. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1460. Story number one. Jungle Heat, written by Who Do You Think? Day one. I've been in this damn jungle for two hours and it's already trying to kill me. My legs got caught under a root, and I nearly fell into some mud that I probably would have drowned in. I'm soaked through. I guess we're expected to fight a war out here, but to me it seems more like we're fighting the jungle than trying to outlast the enemy. Hopefully my gun is operational. I'd hate to die to one of those bastards because of the perpetual muck in this hellhole jammed my rifle. Day 5 I haven't been able to write for several days. I had the time and all, but my notebook was wet. I wasted about five pages when I tried to write without checking if it was dry. I tore through a good portion of the notebook with my pen. Still, no sign of the enemy. I've got a slightly better at traversing the terrain, but it's still difficult. I'd kill to be able to take a shower and dry off. My clothes are now soaked with mud, by the way, uh, the heat is oppressive, 35 degrees Celsius, day and night thanks to the humidity. I can't see more than three meters in front of me because of the foliage. Day 15. There they are. Somewhere they're here. I can hear them creeping through the jungle. They're stealthy, all right, but there's something different about the way they sound as compared to some animal. It just sounds sinister. I haven't slept in 25 hours. Day 23. The feckers are laughing. They're laughing at me. I know it. They're sitting out there just like I am. But the sick feckers like it. The insects are starting to get really loud. I can't hear the enemy creeping around anymore. Me and the boys have been sleeping in shifts. I just want to get out of here. Day 34. Little John's dead. Bastard slit his throat in the middle of the night. 
They also took the last of the nicotine rations. We won't be having our psychoactive drugs, I guess. Maybe it's for the better. They're getting bolder. Even the insects can't make them now, but we can still seem to kill one of the feckers. They'll holler in the night, or howl, or scream. It all sounds so predatory. We were supposed to be rotated out by now, but our replacements are pinned down. Apparently total air superiority doesn't mean jack shit. Yeah. Day 47. First they killed Chondradrell, now they killed Hemdnek. From the tracks we found, they caught him away from his gun and chased him into the stinking pit of mud. We uh, couldn't recover his body. As commanding officer, I decided to activate our thermal protection system and call for incendiary strikes. The jungle burned, all right. But there was nothing there. The goddamn ghosts! Day 50. With our patrol zone a smoldering heap of charcoal, commanders pulled us out. I got a cold shell and a can of Zimpak beans. The barracks don't block out the sound of the insects in this godforsaken place, so I still can't sleep. The airfield has begun launching heavies with full escorts every day to flatten as much of the jungle as we can. But I'm not too hopeful. Day 56. They attacked today. The crazy bastards attacked in a rotary airfoil craft and some ridiculously slow fixed-wing aircraft. It's amazing that they still use aerolift vehicles. They came in blasting some ungodly noise and completely wrecked the runway with some chemical explosives. After they destroyed that and the fuel depot, they started going after things of lesser value, like the latrines. By the end, they were gunning down anything that moved, flattening buildings and making us run for ditches. Then they landed and some combat troops came out. They hunted us. I was lucky to make it off base quickly, but there weren't many of us left. The base is burned to the ground. Day 81 I've been alone in the jungle since the attack. The only reason I know there's a war going on is the constant bombing. I'm getting used to the jungle. At least out here, I can hide. I've been hunting a bit, and I am glad I grabbed a copy of the botany guide as I've fled the base. Half the stuff here is toxic. Day 97. I fell into one of their tunnels today. They captured me pretty quickly, but decided to let me live when I surrendered my weapons. They gave me some food, which my botany guide says is rice. Uh, it's not bad. The bombing is getting more intensive, and at this point, it's my own side that's mostly likely to kill me. Day 113. They always laugh. Shoot a soldier of the Empire in the head, might as well have a good old joke about the Bell and Beast crossing the Transway. They're mad. They relish killing us almost as much as we relish living. There are four million Imperial soldiers on this planet. I'd be surprised if 50,000 made it out alive. The bombing is even more intense, but it doesn't affect them at all. Day 126. Command thinks more bombs will solve the problem. They're out of the goddamn mines. As long as we are where they think we don't belong, they'll be popping out from behind every push, stalking us in the dead of night and killing us when we sleep takes hold. And they'll laugh. They'll always laugh. Gotta run from that laughter. Transcript of a journal kept by Lieutenant Jechnik of the Senfield Imperial Army, 
Bound with his body near a prisoner of war camp in Terminal 4, a human colony world contested in the human Senford War. End of story. Story number two. Acting like children. Written by Heart Storytime. Bartending is the same everywhere you go. Well, maybe not everywhere. Bartending on a trade station. God knows how many light years from Seoul. Certainly at its unique moments. Nothing too serious, of course, like I said. It's the same everywhere you go, except here in my bar. Sometimes the drunken fools getting into it are seven feet tall, or have tentacles. Sometimes I miss the Pacific Northwest. But who could pass up a chance to come up here? Could do my same job, only anywhere in this arm of the galaxy... Make twice the money as a wage and still roll in tips for all the novelty of being a human. The fact that I didn't water down the drinks and served any species just kept me in a steady supply of regulars. Well, aren't you a fat feck? I bet they just gave you all the honey cakes. I recognized that voice, looking over to see my favorite drunken sub of a human stumbling out of his stool at his stand at a full five foot nine against the seven foot Ursa Maxim. Another regular, just getting in from a shift over at the security office. I made my way over quickly to pour his favorite beer and slide it to him. Too late to refill my friend's drink before the argument began to heat up. I could rip you to shreds and wouldn't even crack a claw, you little pink shit. Sit down before you hurt yourself. I looked from one to the other. How about reminding me, boys? Let's let it go and just enjoy our drinks. I know you just got off work, friend. They gave each other a dirty eye as they grabbed their respective drinks. I moved to the center of the bar and pretended to shine a glass, keeping an eye on them both. I really hoped that they'd have sat more than two stools away from one another. Neosa guzzled his beer and began to stare at the human. I knew what that look meant. Another round! I was ignored. He must have, uh... Big balls to mess with an Urza Maxim, little human. You want to fight about it? He knocked over the glass sitting in front of the human. My hand went under the bar and crossed the pump-action shotgun hidden behind the sink. Maybe not as splashy as the las guns being sold here on station, but it's hard to beat a little touch of home. I watched, ready to act, if things got out of hand. The human laughed. <laughs> what a fire about it. You sound like a little kid. How about we settle this? Like children. Like children? A deep-throated growl emanated from Ursa. The human put his hands in his jacket pockets, and I tightened my grip of the hard wooden stock. This was about to happen, and I didn't know how to defuse it. He took a swing at the human, easily dodged, before the human hand came out of his pocket, bringing a handful of something at his opponent's face kicking the Ursa in the nads at the same time as bringing his fist up, meeting the Ursa's jaw as it came down with him. Majestic Lord, you hit like a lumber transport, the Ursa rubbing his jaw still on the floor. I racked the shotgun as the human approached his fallen fur. He glanced at me before holding out his hand. I'm sorry I hurt your feelings. I didn't mean to. I really hope we can be friends. Maybe you can tell me how I hurt your feelings so it doesn't happen again. The Ursa looks at the human with a moment of confusion, and then uh, mirth, 
A growl started deep within Ursa's throat before becoming louder, a bright, boasting laugh. School moms are the same everywhere corner of the galaxy, it seems. I'm sorry, too. I'm a little sensitive about my weight. How about you buy me a drink for making me look like an arsehole in that fight? They both chuckled as I put the gun back where it belonged and poured both their drinks, shaking my head. Bartending is always the same, but out here, it had unique little moments. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1461 Story number one. The Gods Learned Fear Written by Mercury the Dealer The first thing the gods learned was curiosity. They wondered the great clouds of gas that would one day be called the universe and asked themselves many questions. What were they? What was their purpose? What was this place? Eventually, after wandering, they found the mistress. She told them that they were gods and that this was the universe. She told them that her purpose was to punish things called mortals and that their purpose was to control the material plane. A few asked more questions. They wished to know what came before them and what came after. They wished to know the true meaning of the universe. The mistress whispered her knowledge to these few and they broke under the stress of knowing that even they, the most powerful beings in the material plane, were nothing compared to entropy. The gods learned something new. Respect. Respect for the mistress and her wisdom, that is. The gods respected the knowledge that the mistress gave, made things. Suns forced their cores into fusion, planets compacted themselves in the gravity. Asteroid fields dutifully took their place amongst the many solar systems of the forming galaxies. The gods spent millions, perhaps billions of years, mesmerized by the beauty of the universe and its creation. And then something new happened. A god made a rock that moved. It was not elegant by any means. The rock was just a piece of granite that had been infused with divine energy to make it react to its environment. If touched, it moved away. If not, then it just wandered through a lifeless fields of its planet. The gods were thrilled to see this rock. Sure, suns and asteroids moved faster and were prettier, but they were tied to the universal laws, while the rock seemed to move randomly. The gods learned a new thing for the third time. Envy. They envied the creator of the rock for having control over it. The envy made them make their own rocks. Some were granite, others were obsidian, and a few were marble. Groups sprouted all throughout the universe as gods shed rocks. Some liked to see the rocks hit each other. Others wanted the rocks to interact with the planet. A few just gave the rocks the ability to make new rocks and watched as they multiplied and bumped into each other. Each group wanted the others to play with the rocks as they did, not out of malice, but because they truly believed that their method was the best one. And they would teach their brothers and sisters about the right way by any means necessary. In a twisted way, the gods wished to see each other happy gave them the fourth lesson, tribalism. They kept changing the rocks again and again. Someone discovered that they could make the rocks that moved with energy of the sun and not from the gods, which allowed for even more rocks to be kept. 
another, realized that instead of making every rock use the energy of the sun, they could instead make a few motionless rocks that collected that energy, so that the moving ones could harness it later. Lastly, someone realized that the rocks were heavy and chunky, so they made a compost called flesh that was much easier to work with. Sure, they needed things like air and water to live, but the new plants could handle it fine. The planets were given true life for the first time. Animals and plants competed for energy. The oceans and skies were filled with strange creatures, which would be unimaginable during the age of rock. Things were interesting again. But the gods still did not budge on their ways of playing with their new animals. Seeing that the others would not see reason, the gods of knowledge made their magnum opus a sapient species. It talked, it built, it ate, it slept, and above all, it worshipped. The worship of the first mortals gave them all of the thing that now ate their minds like a parasite. A parasite that gave them another lesson, megalomania. The gods of war made their own mortals and gave them strength and speed. The gods of knowledge blessed their children with wisdom and control over the resources of their worlds. The gods of lust gave their creations the ability to feel pleasure and happiness, and taught them how to spread said happiness to others. The three groups realized something. If they got the mortals of the others to join them, they would be worshipped more. The gods whispered in the ears of mortals, and taught them how to leave their planets and explore the stars. They taught them the miracles of asteroid mining and, eventually, told them that others would try and take these luxuries from them. The gods expected war. Like a self-fulfilling prophecy, they got war. The divine game was on. In a distant system, one planet hit another. Both planets cracked and reformed, though one of them became a moon. The new planet was hit by a greater shower of ice-rich asteroids that filled its atmosphere with steam. The planet cooled, and the steam became great oceans. From the ocean, life emerged. It was miserable and delicate, but soon it became complex and adaptable. The life rose from the depths and into the land. Great forests appeared, and those were soon filled with all manner of life. Life that would go extinct numerous times, only to emerge stronger. There, as the gods played their game, a sapient species appeared. He was naked, afraid, and had a thirst for death. The people had no gods to guide them. They had no help on how to survive. The only thing that they had close to a god was the mistress, which they all only met in hell. They lacked gods, and so they made their own. The cut of the sword, the bite of the musket, the crack of the artillery, those were their gods of war. The curiosity of a child, the wisdom of an elder, the adaptation of an engineer, those were their gods of knowledge. The desire of the lonely, the greed of the wealthy, the megalomania of the rulers, those were their gods of lust. The people, the humans, rose from the planet, not with a ship tailor made by a god, but one of their own design, fueled by their will to explore, and their spite towards the universe that had tried to hardest to kill them, and that they, much like the insane gods, 
knew would one day fall to entropy. The gods found the humans only a year after they had discovered FTL, mostly because no one had ever done such a thing without the help of divine energy. The gods of war were shocked at the human strength. The gods of knowledge were ecstatic at the scientific achievements. The gods of lust salivated at humanity's luxuries and art. No one could agree about who would get the humans, so they declared war on each other and on the humans to see who would get the godless species. The gods clashed and destroyed each other's worlds and the mortals with more and more vigor. Eventually, it became clear that the Great War was too expensive, and so most gods licked their wounds while ordering the weaker ones to get whatever piece of humanity they could. The divine fleets entered the now much larger human territory and never left. The gods called their brothers to come back soon, that they were worried. In response, three gigantic fleets appeared, each turned towards the domain of one group of gods. In the flagship of each fleet, the corpses of their brothers and sisters hung like sick trophies. The gods of war, knowledge, and lust were no more. Their divisions and infighting were gone, replaced by the universal hate that they felt towards the humans. The gods fought with less strength and numbers. They wept for their fallen and soon joined them. They sent their devoted followers into suicide attacks that they knew would never work. They soon became new pieces of the ship's hulls. They asked the mistress for protection, only to find that the godless monsters had colonized hell. Their pride was gone. Their thirst for power was gone. All the gods wanted was to live for just a bit longer. It didn't matter. As the last of the gods perished under the fire of human weapons, they all learned one new feeling. Fear. It was the last thing that they ever learned. End of story. Story number two. Some Wings, written by Satoshi. The starships that soar out from the Kingdom of Soul never fail to impress me. Yesterday's stradership was no exception. Hello, Captain, I said to the human as she stood near the landing pad. I was just admiring your fine vessel when something about it grabbed my interest. Oh yeah, she asked, turning with an amicable grin. Yes, yes, uh, I was wondering about those um, wings. That set of wing-like protrusions on the dorsal side. I've never seen something like that. Is it some new kind of shield generator? The captain shook her head. Uh, good guess, though. Oh, <clears throat> ah, do the wings aid in atmospheric flight? Nah, actually, it would probably be better in Atma without them. Is that so? Is it some kind of weapon? then. Nope. Um, heat radiators, solar panels, ah, warp nacelles. None of the above. I stared at her, confused. Then, uh, what is the purpose? She regarded the ship and smiled again. Looks cool. End of story.
Tales from Outer Space, 1462. Because we wanted to be better when we reached the stars. Written by Wyvern72NFA5. We thought that we'd seen it all when the Varika attacked. They were a species that originated from a death world, and their conquests nearly destroyed the galaxy. We thought that it was just a fluke. Death worlds couldn't bear sapient life, and yet they came about. We decided that that was the end of it, and the galaxy would have its peaceful golden age soon. Then we stumbled upon not one, not two, but four death world species on the cusp of achieving superluminal flight. We decided in a narrow vote that after what happened with the Varika, it was too risky to let the Death Worlders live and to exterminate them. Problem being, no one wanted to actually do it. Some are pacifists, others were too cowardly, and many are simply against killing entire species. The problem was argued over and over again in the council lobby by the various species until then one ambassador had an epiphany. Let them fight, he screamed out with a smug look and a clicked upon all assembled. We learn from the Vareka that Death Worlders are usually highly aggressive, territorial, and insane to begin with, and with four of them being quite close to each other, it could work. And so, the Council vacated the space up to 500 light years away from the nearest Death Worlders, and with bated breath, we watched from afar as the Death Worlders take to the stars, one by one. First were the reptilian Eyeless Fawai, from the world with the lowest gravity. They're the weaker than the rest. Smaller, but still beings who dominated their world with huge numbers and with a knack for the sciences and mathematics. Next were the Vraslal, large, insectoid monstrosities moving with ridiculous speeds and surprising coordination. They swallowed worlds, terraforming them into hive worlds of their liking. Avian-like Kazadians came next, with a militaristic warrior culture. They take to the stars in great numbers to seek a challenge or an end to their boredom. Fingering the triggers on their gigantic slug throws whilst huge swords were strapped to their backs. Last, but not least, were humans coming from the highest gravity world of the four and they struck out to be the most enduring of them all. Sooner and later... Those species would come into contact with one another and start an all-out war. We hoped that with some luck, the utter destruction would be kept limited within the certain zone. We knew that though humans had a dark past, the other three weren't much better at all. Then, with bated breath, we watched as the humans and Kazadians found each other through primitive radios and uh, didn't kill one another. Maybe they were taking the time to plan and gather information before striking, said one scientist. But the war we thought was brewing after first contact never occurred, as though highly competitive, both species found a love in uh, sports and seemed to be fond of one another with their love of eating actual poison in their food like uh, capsaicin. They gushed about each other's weaponry and compared tactics and strategies. It seems as though war was not happening, but then the Falvi came, and we finally got what we wanted. A war broke out after a disastrous first contact situation, and then promptly burnt out after less than a month 
with a death toll of barely a thousand. Apparently, it was caused thanks to a misunderstanding and miscommunication, and after both sides welcomed each other and forgot about the whole thing. With unactual eyes, the Falvey came to appreciate the finer aspects of life like sound and music, and the other death wilders seemed to like that plus their resourcefulness and knack for engineering. They apparently see other two races as an opportunity to learn more about the sciences of the universe and gain a new perspective than rivals. The other two seem to share the same sentiment. But surely the monstrous insectoid Rustlal would be shot on sight. They somehow manage to be the most peaceful species of the four. It also turns out that they share a lot of biological and cultural similarities with the other three species, and quickly wanted in on the other death world's own growing intergalactic community. How? Oh! We screamed out our frustrations. How are they not killing each other? After much further studies, we thought we figured it out. It was the humans. They had a tendency to pack bond with virtually anything and everything. They were so enamored with the possibility of making friends along the stars that they uplifted some of the animals of their own planet. Dress up or even biologically engineer themselves into its exotic forms. It took a lot to learn how it happened. Some of the scientists are still crying themselves to sleep over discovering the fabled 34th rule of the human's internet. Worse still, the sentiment was spreading to other species as well as they tried to succeed in doing what the humans did. Kazadeans managing to bioengineer some of them to be born with wings as a fun pastime before it exploded in popularity in their worlds. The Falvine managed to uplift and domesticated pack animal they once used to a great extent and welcomed them to the fold. The Vraslal thought to bring new innovations to artificial intelligence, managing to create fully sapient AIs that didn't go genocidal as they awoke. It was madness. We didn't think the Death Worlders could do things like this. We thought that they would all go insane and try and kill each other at a moment's notice. So it came to a consensus that the Death Worlders would probably not try to kill each other for a long time, and after another vote decided they would simply watch and quarantine the area in a vain hope that they would all die out before they found us. A particular few of us argued that was what was observed that they could be trusted. However, the Verkan disagreed prepping their ships for war, being the most adamant about exterminating the Death Worlders, and saw the rest of us as spineless cowards. We could have stopped them. We should have. They weren't even the strongest of us, not by a wide margin. But on a sense, all of us were glad that someone was willing to do it. And so we just watched. They set their sights on the nearest inhabited world, a human colony. One of their admirals, growing impatient, decided to jump his fleet in system and destroy the world himself, and opposing him were only a scant few human ships in system. The humans, in their endless optimism, happily rushed out to greet them, only for their ships to burn. We watched from deployed drones on what we thought was going to be a slaughter as Birkin ships moved to only inhabit the planet. In a way, we were right. The remaining human ships, in orbit, easily able to simply jump away, stood to fight as they formed a screen over the planet. Those without weapons moved to start evacuating the colony below. The human ships 
comprising entirely of picket ships, armed merchant ships, armed civilian transports, fought back. And they fought back with a fury that we didn't understand. They rammed against Verkan Corvettes, overloaded their reactors to destroy frigates, and a private yacht, of all things, managed to slip into a hangar of a carrier while landing a smuggled antimatter explosive. The carrier simply ceased to exist. The battle that should have lasted only minutes lasted three hours. It bought enough time for the budding colony to evacuate, and costed the Verkan half its fleet. Still, the Verkan pushed on. A single battle does not decide the fate of war. In four weeks, more fleets and armadas jumped into human space, firing at anything and everything they could see. In all of those battles, the humans fought on with more fury and courage than we ever imagined. Their entire species seemed to have united under the banner of war. Pirate vessels fought side by side with armed merchants in defense of worlds that they once devastated. Private civilians got together to form convoys in order to evacuate all they could, or to delay the Verkan so the Navy can organize. The human actual fleets arrived in crucial moments, buying enough time for entire colonies to evacuate as they fought a delaying action, taking three Verkan ships for every one of theirs. The Verkan were clearly agitated at this. They were at least a thousand years more advanced than the humans and outnumbered them. How dared they stand defiant against their advance? And so, we watched as they plotted, some providing minor material support for the war effort. The Verkan leadership decided that they needed a decisive strike to break the humans' morale, and what better way to cripple their spirit than destroy Earth, their cradle world. So, the entire Verkan Void Navy jumped into the Sol system and found that it was a fortress of no equals. There were defensive walls over defensive walls of fortifications made of gigantic orbital lasers, magnetic accelerator cannons, and orbital defense platforms, all of which were supplemented with Earth's own defense fleet as the humans were keen to protect Earth and its sisters from harm. The ensuing battle waged on for a month, as the Verkan threw every ship that they had in system, whilst the humans realizing this must be the entire Verkan armada, raced all of the ships into the system in defense. It was a madness incarnate, but as the dust cleared from the formerly chaotic battlefield, the human fleet lay ragged against half of the original armada arrayed against them. It was over. We knew it. The Verkan knew it. The humans knew it, but they still gripped their teeth and charged out, ready to take five of the enemy ships for one of theirs. The Kazadeans, the Falvai, and the Krasnal did not share the sentiment. Falvai ships suddenly screamed into the system in the hundreds and then thousands before firing their drives and charging the Verkan lines as a mass. Most of their ships were incomplete, slapped together, or were literally floating pieces of debris, junk, or asteroids with engines strapped on. They fought with the careless abandonment of their lives, and though they were destroyed in their hundreds, a thousand more jumped in, making use of their massive numbers to bog down the Verkan. When the Valvi started to slow down, Gazadeans entered the fray. They led the charge with decommissioned warships converted into armament ships filled to the brim with missiles and flown only 
by skeleton crews, resulting in an overpowering first strike. Making use of the more efficient and faster engines, they did hit and run tactics, skirmishing down the numbers of the Verkan as they knew that they could not win in a direct engagement. We watched as the battle raged on for another whole month. More human ships came ready to defend their homes as the Verkan Armada slowed down considerably. Knowing that it was now or never, the Verkan flew in the last of their ships, all of them, reinforcing their now ragged armada with any and all ships that they have left. The Verkan fleet cheered as their reinforcements arrived just in the nick of time. Rastlal's hive carriers agreed with the sentiment, and their cheers were silenced as from the entire hive fleet came hundreds of thousands of parasite craft and bombers. A human fleet originally aiming to cut off Verkan supply lines took the chance to jump behind them, as the rest of the Kezidaean fleet jumped in along with the actual Falvine navy, with tens of thousands of actual warships, the ships before being refitted civilian or decommissioned military craft. The battle for Sol would be one to remember as it waged on for another month as the tide turned against the Verkan. We watched as the remaining Verkan ships were massacred as they tried to run, only to find the humans had installed an FTL interdiction field around the Sol system, trapping them in. There was no time for Victoria's side to cheer, as they one by one turned towards where the Vulcan came from. As on our side, we decided to... How did the humans call it? Throw the Vulcan under the bus by kicking them out of the council, cut off all connections with them, and hope that the enraged Deathworlders don't decide to eat us as well. When they finally breached into Vulcan space a decade later, with warships armed with new and improved technology... They swept aside whatever defenses the Verkans made and forced an unconditional surrender. We were scared as we watched, witnessing the Death Worlders' skill, violence, anger, fury, kindness, benevolence, and mercy. In a twist, the new Terran Confederacy, making fun of the fact that all four Death World species named their planet after some form of dirt, earth, or terror, decided to show mercy on the Verkan. They have rules of engagement, and even though the Verkan committed atrocities in the war, they didn't. Following their own armadas were fleets of hospital ships, tenders, and other vessels following to treat the wounds, diseases, and to help out whoever they are, no matter what. In a bid to eliminate the monsters, we have become the monsters ourselves. We've been blinded by our own prejudices and struck out against not one, but four species that have done nothing wrong due to our own fears. And while some said that the fault lies with the Verkan, we are also guilty in our mission of not interfering. And in the end, the galaxy became better because of it. The Death Worlders did not blame us at all, nor did they blame the Verkan as a species. Nowadays, there are a major part of the galaxy. They explore the unknown spaces, fight death with a red cross on their bands, send aid to those who need them, and trade with others. The galaxy has never seen such a golden age since they entered, and it is only getting better 
every day. When we asked them why they didn't just kill each other, as they would have been easier, they all had the same answer. Because we wanted to be better when we reached the stars. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1463 Of War and Death Written by Nick Graydon Swings steps into the bar, his bones weary from long days and constant need of his attention recently. Since humanity had joined the stars, death had come into contact with others of his kind, each a different manifestation of the end of life tasked to escort races to the beyond. While all of the deaths shared similar powers, such as the ability to be many places at once, how they accomplished their tasks and their physical manifestations differed wildly. Swings had been given his name by a death named Chubbs due to Swings' soul harvesting method. And, as he glanced around the room, he found his naming friend seated a few tables away and moved to join him. Chubbs wasn't fat, but took the name himself as he was the first, though not the last, amongst the stars that ate the souls of the deceased. He was a large, red oval creature, cartoonally similar to his tasked race, and was currently using his oversized mouth to swing down several drinks at once. Swings nodded to him, and Hansy, another death-colored blue that lovingly caressed the souls of his race, and carried them beyond in delicate hands. Swings groaned as he used his scythe to help him to his seat, and then banished it to an elsewhere. Been a long day, her Swings, Chubbs said. It wasn't a question, just a statement. Yeah, Swings said. Wish they'd hurry up and end this war. Chubbs gave a bark of laughter that held no humor. He was the death of the race the humans were fighting. Both sides were getting more than they bargained for, and uh, as a result, both Swings and Chubbs were overworked. Neither cared how much who won. While they were deaths of their respective races, such matters were worldly and mortal, concerns that did not interfere with their plane of existence. They drank in silence for a while before Hansy decided to ask a question he'd wondered about for a while. So you banish that scathe of yours every time you come in here, but you could easily just fold it into your robes, or lay it on the ground, or even check it at the door. Where exactly do you send that thing? Swings took another long pull from his mug and sighed contently. Off to get sharpened, he finally said. Got some essence of me broke off to sharpen the sides at all times. Another part that focuses on combat training. Humans are stubborn. Chubbs and Hansy just looked at each other before Hansy interrupted Swings drinking again. Um, what do you mean? Swings would have smiled if he had lips. Instead, a snort came out through the nasal holes in his head. Humans don't want to go to the beyond. They put up one hell of a fight unless they had a very fulfilling life and are ready. Young folks, especially those who die in war, are extremely obstinate about the whole there. Plus, uh, they don't fight fair. Mean bastards they are. Chubb scoffed. Now you're just complaining. We all have times when we work a lot. There is no difference. A human having definitely been sending a lot of work my way. And what do you mean they fight? Added Hansi. 
A waiter dropped three shots in front of swings, and he eyed them carefully before picking them up and downing them in quick succession. Then he looked at his friends. Tell you what, the sun will be up in Doris 3 in a few hours. Why don't you both join me there? Doris 3. The trio found themselves not far behind the human lines in what the humans called a mobile medical station. Here, members of the human race tried to save the lives of those injured in battle. Souls pulsated around every entity like an anima of light surrounding them as was normal. Some of those on the beds waxed and waned more meekly than others as their tie to the mortal shell weakened. The place was almost a madhouse of activity, compared to what either Chubbs or Hansy had ever seen. They stared in wonder as humans calmly yet quickly rushed from place to place. Swings, however, stared across the room until his gaze finally fixated on one individual. His chest was burned around a deep open wound as people worked feverishly trying to stabilize him. Why did they do this? Chubbs asked. It's obvious so many won't make it. Why not let them go? I tried to tell you they are stubborn, Swings said as he nodded towards the wounded soldier who had caught his eye. It is a time for that one. Go ahead and try and take him. Maybe you'll see. Chubbs stepped forward, willing himself to appear before the man's soul. It is time, good soldier. You are now to pass beyond, he said with a sad smile. The soul before him seemed taken aback but made no move. Instead, he was focused on the body he was tied to, pouring himself into it. Chubb sighed and reached out to the man's soul. It smacked his hand away. Chubbs was taken back. What was this? He firmly grabbed the arm of the alien. It's time to go, friend. Sorry. And with that, Chubbs opened his mouth. It was surprisingly easy to get the soul into his mouth. But then Chubbs started to gag. The human soul had wrapped his hands around Chubbs' teeth and began kicking with his back of his throat. Chubbs clamped down with all of his might, but the human soul swung his feet down and stomped on his tongue. With monumental effort, the soul held the death's jaws open. Chubbs did all he could, but eventually was forced to spit the soul out. What in the hell was that? He exclaimed between coughs. Swings only shrugged. You can't force yourself on them. They've been in battle. They need to be caressed. Like this, Hansy said, stepping forward. Good sir, your fight is over, the Blue Death said as he stroked the soldier's soul soothingly. The soul shuddered with pleasure in response. It is time you move on from here. Hansy slowly bent to pick up the poor soul to cradle it, and slowly break it away from the tether to the body. But before he could lift the soul completely, it seemed aware of what was happening, and unceremoniously pushed Hansy away and to the floor before returning to the light about his body. Swings had had enough. He cracked his neck and summoned forth his scythe. He stepped slowly forward and announced himself in a voice of rolling thunder, Come! The sand is at an end! It is... Time. The soul seemed to recognize this version of death, and he dropped into a defensive crouch. The light of the soul pulsated faster, and from the soul's chest it drew a sword of its own essence. Armor seeped out of the soul for protection, and, alarmingly, 
the two spectres' deaths charged at Swings with a war cry. The charge was easily parried, and Swings swung for the tether between it and the body on the table, but a quick leap caused the blow to miss. The soul was quick, but Swings was quicker. Not only that, but his two friends noticed that Swings kept looking around, taking in all of his surroundings. The duo felt Swings was being more cautious than he needed to be, until a quick dodge left the soul's tether open. Swings lifted his scythe, but was sucker-punched in the back of the head and dropped to the floor. It took a full second for Chubbs and Hansy to realize what had happened, but from their slack-jawed stupor, they found themselves staring at two souls battling Swings. They traced the trail back to the doctor working on the human, his soul no longer surrounding his own body, but stretched to aid the fight. Slowly, the two souls fought for one as Swings deftly fought a defensive battle, always aiming for the tether of the soul that he'd been tasked with taking. A feint, a parry, a swing, a dodge, the two souls not giving an inch to their own manifestation of death. Clash after clash was made, but it was becoming clear Swings was learning and beginning to find openings. The dodges were becoming easier and the reposts coming quicker, in an amazing move, Swing spun away from the sword thrust, kicked the doctor out of the way, and swiped upwards with his scythe, nicking the edge of the silver thread, but not severing it. The doctor's soul raged in a fury, and Chubbs and Hansy saw his mortal body suddenly leap on top of the soldier on the table, pressing hard onto the soldier's chest. With a brutal battery of lightning-quick punches, the soul of the doctor came at Swing's again. From the table, the doctor was yelling, Come on, damn it! Don't let that son of a bitch win! With a slip and a jab, and then a strong right hook, the doctor's soul landed swings on the ground, sliding on his back, and then twirling to his feet. Death got back up. The soldier's soul was injured, and with not much in the way of offense to give, swings knew it was only a matter of time. The doctor's soul fought hard, but an inch of overextinction and swings sidestepped him, tripped him with the bust of his scythe, and raced forward. In a practice swing, he severed the silver cord, and the soul was free at last. Jobs and Hansy let out a breath that they didn't even notice that they were holding when a new cry of rage was heard. The nurse's soul, who had been working alongside the doctor, lashed out and grabbed the soldier's severed soul by the arm. The doctor's soul jumped up and began pummeling swings, but each strike seemed less and less effective. The nurse was desperately trying to lead the soul back to the soldier's body, but a single, skeletal hand snatched the other arm of the soldier's soul, and with a jerk, ripped it away from the nurse. The doctor's soul, seeing his blows having less and less effect, began to slow until they eventually stopped, and his soul lighted once more about his mortal body. The nurse's soul followed suit and only the severed soul of the soldier remained seemingly paralyzed. Swings took a deep breath and saluted the soul. Come, he said. The soul obeyed without further protest and followed Swings down the corridor of light. Swings walked up beside his two friends, watching the soul leave into the light with another essence of himself. See what I mean? They don't go quietly. Never have, never will. Chubbs and Hansy looked at Swings for a long moment before Hansy broke the awkward silence. Why? Why do they do this? How do they do it? 
Swing shrugged. It's in their nature, I suppose. Maybe some evolutionary trait they picked up along the way. Who the hell knows? But you see what I mean now? They both nodded. See you back at the bar tonight, then, Swing said. Remind me and I'll tell you of the horror story about the one soldier named Desmond Doss. He's the bastard that gave me this, he said, as he pulled back the cowl of his robe to show a cracked left cheekbone. He ran the length of it of the bony finger before letting the cowl fall back again. Anyways, see you tonight. Lots of work to do. And with that, Swings walked away. Chubs and hands, he stood in stunned silence for a moment before running off to Swings. Wait! Wait a minute. How in the hell did he even mark you? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1464. Story double one. Best served cold. Written by Voyager 1713. It started with a bang. Well, it actually started with a whisper. But when the bang happened and the galaxy started looking for the problem, it was too late. By the time anyone figured out what was going on, a full 3% of the galaxy was gone, and we were all doomed. I'm getting ahead of myself. My species, the Ignax, were the first to find the humans of Sol 3 about 2,000 years ago. The Galactic Empire at the time considered any species that was pre-FTL to be non-sentient. Their world free to conquer and harvest for material. Needless to say... My ancestors were salivating at the potential prize that they uncovered. My only wish that I could go back and kick some sense into those bloody fools. After about ten years of invasion, preparations, then registering the planet with the GE as a prize for the Ignax Nation, my ancestors began to attack the humans. What the galaxy thought would be another quick and simple extermination of local non-sentient species turned into a long and arduous 80-year war. The humans managed to bring down some of our attack craft and reverse-engineered their own versions of our weaponry and shields, somehow even improved on the design and effectiveness. Nevertheless, my ancestors were slowly winning the war bit by bit. Sure, they killed 12 Ignax to every human killed, but our invasion force was constantly resupplied with fresh troops. For the humans, only had what was on their homeworld. It was during the final month of the war that the whisper happened, and no one noticed for decades. Until the first ban. Humans are inventive, little, expletive, closest translation, afterbirth of a diseased pest. During the last few years of the war, they managed to build what they call a last resort device in their intercepted messages. Using the improved stolen technology, they managed to build a single probe. The humans launched the probe, along with their remaining nuclear weapons during the final month. The humans used the warheads as a distraction to get the probe cloaked and far enough away from our senses, nuking the surface of their own world as a final middle finger to the galaxy. The sensor net that we placed on the initial attack reported that something left the Oracle orbit, but... To steal the saying from the humans, it would be like finding a needle in a solar system with all the radiation blinding the net. The higher-ups deemed the object as floatsome, just a bit of space junk, and immediately ignored it to concentrate on more important tasks. The fools! Thirty years later, the first of the bangs happened. 
The binary star system closest to the Sol system went supernova at the same time. The event grabbed the attention of the stellar scientists in the Galactic Empire. The Proxima Alpha Centauri stars were thought to be unable to go supernova, and there was no indication from any of the science probes in the system that the stars were unstable. Less than a year later, Bernard's star went supernova, then Wolf 359. In the span of 10 years, the rate increased exponentially. All the stars within 30 light-year radius of Sol became supernova, regardless of the star's condition. The media started calling it the Sol Phage, as the only star that seemed unaffected was Sol itself. The Galactic Empire ran the largest relocation effort at the time, clearing out a quarantine area of over a thousand populated systems and setting up sensor nets that would hopefully act as an early warning system. The sensors only gave the Galactic Empire about 24-hour notice before the star would explode, wiping out any orbiting stellar bodies and leaving behind glowing gas and dust. A bounty was created for any information on why the Sol Phage was happening and how to stop it, or at least slow it down. Millions of amateur scientists, researchers, explorers, and high school equivalent dropouts scoured the rapidly expanding quarantine area for clues. It took 300 years and 3% of the galaxy gone before we literally hit the answer. One of the bounty hunter teams must have used all the remaining luck in the universe. The team impacted with an unmanned stealth probe in an ice rock debris belt normally found at the edge of a solar system about 250 light-years from Sol. They recovered the probe and brought it back for analysis. The results were not good. The probe was a 100-meter cylinder, 25 meters in diameter, with a set of rings on either end. The color was so black that it seemed to absorb the light from the laboratory. The scientists noted that the coating was not only allowed the probe to act like a hole in space, but it also covered the hole up as if it wasn't there. Any energy that leaked from the probe was just slightly over the cosmic background radiation, making the device next to impossible to detect. We managed to crack open the probe and found that it was equipped with a reactionless drive system that the Galactic Empire had theorized, but ultimately thought impossible to create. A power source that used a Casimir effect to create nearly unlimited energy. Again... Something we had thought impossible. A device that took up half of the space inside the scientists eventually named the Forge. The impact caused the probe's memory banks to wipe and self-destruct, along with what seemed to be critical parts of the internals. But the scientists managed to figure out that the probe had two main functions. First, it traveled to a nearby star and settled into an outer debris field, where it mined for resources to replicate itself using the forge. The humans had a term for this, a von Neumann probe. This explained the growth. The second function is what caused the sulfage. The probe would create a bomb of sorts, filled with some kind of exotic matter that our scientists still don't understand. 1,500 years later, the bomb was sent into the star with a timer and would cause the star to go supernova. This device came from another term the humans had, M.A.D., Mutually Assured Destruction. The scientists found a plaque and the probe, and after translating the inscription based on the copied media from the human's internet, 
sent a widespread panic through the Empire. The block is how we realized the galaxy was doomed. That block is why I'm telling you the story. The Galactic Empire is no more. The few remaining stars of our galaxy are on borrowed time. The last great hope that we have is to send you in a sleeper ship to colonize the next galaxy. We hope that they program the probes to only stay within our galaxy. But with the human's legacy and wrath, we're not sure. The block, all right. Here are the words of our galaxy's doom. UESS Retaliation, Generation 27. For revenge is a dish best served cold. End of story. Story number two. Those that thrive in the light. Written by good dear nice bear. It was an unprecedented night. The outpost on XB-988 had received a message from a previously undiscovered species. The premier in that sector didn't hide her annoyance until she heard what that message contained, that is. It wasn't a proclamation of a new empire destined to rule the galaxy, nor another Zediot warning everyone around to not dare approach them. This time, it was different. It was a present from a small, distant world, representing our hope, determination, and goodwill in a vast, marvelous universe, as it claimed. And this wasn't yet all of it. Already all of those involved were skeptical. It seemed like a cruel trap, luring those naive enough to think an alien species may not want only to rule and subjugate others. The Premier decided that three lower-class scientists should remain in the outpost's main chamber, and listened to the whole message. After all, if it was some kind of trap, she didn't want to lose too many of her people. After three whole cycles, the scientists made clear that there was nothing sinister about the message. Moreover, they insisted that the Premier needed to see it herself. After the showing, she was speechless. The message was filled with greetings and images, sounds of nearby stars symbolizing hellos from the region of the galaxy itself symphonies that she was captured entirely by. Her entourage's favorite one was about the so-called imagination. Light clicks that echoed throughout the outpost, spiking everyone's interest. After a while, a showing room was filled completely with staff fascinated by the sounds. And most interestingly, they hoped to overcome the challenges of their times and join a community of galactic civilizations and that was the only remotely bleak thing in the whole transmission. There wasn't a galactic community of friendly nations waiting for them. There was just a handful of bickering realms in a constant state of war. That is, when the whole ordeal was reported to the higher-ups. Every significant worker of the outpost signed personally under the letter to the Viceroy himself, to send a flotilla of warships and civilian ships to welcome those magnificent beings as equals. It's the first time in known history where a species deserving of such treatment was found. And when the translation transmission dicked out, all hell broke loose. Millions volunteered to be a part of such an endeavor. Ships from the most respected dockyards were donated, and military vessels from the most secretive labs were drafted. Veterans poured into the capital, demanding that they be a part of the project. They wanted to make sure that no one harmed 
possibly the only species willing to befriend them. And whenever you went, you would most certainly hear the music of the blue marble. The only thing on people's mind was the expedition. And when it finally arrived, more was an understatement. Those that were a metaphorical beacon for the civilization for the past months also turned out to be an actual one. Their cities flooded with cool blue and warm yellow lights, illuminated as much of their artificial creations as their astonishing minds and kindness. Every soul in the flotilla clung to their viewpoints, from the harshest of their commanders to the generals and to children, fascinated by seemingly the only species that would play with them, hopefully soon. The news channels have gone crazy. For the past few days, there have been non-stop reports of unknown objects heading for Earth. And now, of all things, every possible media was filled with a single phrase. Do not be afraid. We come in peace for all mankind. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1465 The Gods of Creation Written by Space Paladin 15 I spent many a night gazing up at the stars as a young boy, peering through a telescope. You could always see the outline of the Sky Palace hovering above our capital. The priests taught that this massive great disk was the home of the gods. Benevolent deities who granted us their blessing in return for our worship. Few even thought to argue these teachings. After all, we could all look upon the palace with our own eyes. That was evidence enough, said the church. For who could build a fortress in the heavens except the divines? Now myths say that the gods revealed themselves to our ancestors at the beginning of our civilization. They descended from the sky to provide gifts and mortal teachings. Do unto others as you wish to be done unto you, was the foremost of these rules. After, they returned to their perch in the heavens, always watching. Only the Holy Emperor had contacted them directly since the ascension. But despite having seen their majestic home with my own eyes, I was not convinced of these creatures' divinity. Their existence was certain, but I believe that we had misjudged their nature. Before arguing that our gods were not divine, I was a prominent and respected astronomer, the church was happy to accept my calculations of the circumference of our planet, but not so happy to accept my proclamation that all phenomena had a natural explanation. It was likely that I would be executed for heresy any day now. I did not fear death. I simply wished to know the truth before I died, which is why I had snuck into the imperial palace, to the altar room. It was a suicidal idea to confront the gods myself, but I felt that I had nothing left to lose. The altar was on an ornate golden pedestal with black button resting on top. This was the fabled chamber where the emperor would call on the gods to summon him. I walked up and inspected the device closely, looking for any hidden mechanisms. How would the secret work? After a brief moment of hesitation, I pressed the button down with a hand. My heart rate skyrocketed. As I waited, nerves nauseating me. Panic only really set in when I felt a strange tingling sensation course throughout my body. Glancing down, 
I saw my arms and legs disintegrating. My stomach flipped at an unnatural sight. I tried to open my mouth to scream, but I could not move. A thousand colors flashed before my eyes as my last sliver of consciousness was sucked away. Next thing I knew, I found myself collapsed on a strange metallic floor. The coldness of it struck me immediately, causing my eyes to snap open. I double-checked each of my limbs to make sure that they were still there. I was dazed and disoriented, but otherwise unharmed. Well, you're not Emperor Dolan. First trip is always rougher. You'll be fine. Lock him aboard. A deep voice bellowed. I glanced up to find the bipedal figure with a form nearly identical to ours. The obvious difference was that rather than an azure skin like mine, he had a pale, almost white complexion, as though all of the color had been drained from his skin. The creature studied me closely. What can we do for you? Every instinct in my body screamed at me to beg for forgiveness and ask to return home. Whatever these things were, good or not, they had the power well beyond our own. What I had just experienced made me wonder if I had made a grave error in judgment. But my voice was somehow steady and confident as I said, I don't believe you're gods. I met the pale being's eyes, wondering if he would smite me on spot. Perhaps he would vaporize me for non-belief with the snap of the fingers. Or worse, inflict torture beyond what I could imagine. But his reaction was not at all what I expected. He laughed softly and extended a hand to hold me up. Finally! <laughs> That's what we've been trying to tell your leaders for centuries! I accepted his hand and rose to my feet. Wait, uh, you admit it? What... What are you then? Please, I... I want to understand. I will answer all of your questions, he replied. But first, uh, let me introduce myself. I'm Nathan. Uh, what's your name? Gashev. Nathan smiled. Well, Gashev, you are correct. We are not gods. We are mortals, just as you are. We, we love, we live, we hate, we die. We call ourselves um, humans, sir. And we are born on a planet like yours that we call Earth. Earth revolves around a different sun, a star very far away. An awe-struck look crossed my face. How is that possible? How are you here? We devoted ourselves to science. We sought to understand the forces of the universe. As you build ships to sail your seas with steam engines, we build engines powerful enough to sail the skies. A starship. The more I listened to Nathan talk, the more I became aware of how brilliant these people were. Their innovations were somehow more impressive with the knowledge that they were mortal. To think that these humans had found a way to travel through the stars. What an enterprising lot they must be. He paused as if considering his next words. That heart, uh, how kind are adventurers, but driven by loneliness as much as curiosity. We pushed on because we feared being the only ones. There had to be others like us out there. Or uh, so he thought. But the stars were barren and empty, void of all life. We searched every corner of the universe. No stone left unturned. Humanity is older than you can comprehend. The search continued for errors even after every galaxy had been charted. But all of this just led us to find that we were utterly and truly alone.
the cosmic irony was not lost in us. It was nature's cruel joke that we would call into an empty void. So we stared at the bleak reality of our universe in the face, and rather than call it quits, we looked nature in the eyes and said, No, if we could not find others, we would make them ourselves. Our best and brightest minds were tasked with your creation. We made you unique, better than us even, and we altered this world to be a place that you could live. We wanted you to do things on your own, so that your society could have its own identity. But we helped speed up your development, and we tried to teach you to live righteously, so that you would not make our mistakes. Humanity was always watching, always caring for you. You are our children. My entire worldview changed drastically after that first meeting. His monologue was etched into my memory. If they could accomplish so much as a species, it meant that we could too. The very definition of what was possible within the bounds of science had shifted. With the help of our watchful human guardians, I was certain that the stars were within our grasp. If only we were to reach up and touch them. The crew was all too eager to befriend me, and I was permitted to stay aboard the ship as long as I liked. I witnessed technological marvels beyond my wildest imagination, and learned of their culture. I recorded my experience through detailed notes, logging what I observed for posterity. Hours turned to days, then days turned to months. I was ready to return to my people, to share the knowledge I had gained. Nathan, who I had taken to calling Captain as his crew did, offered to accompany me so that I would not be executed on sight. The dematerialization of my body felt as strange on the return trip, but at least it was not surprising this time. In a heartbeat, I found myself back at the altar in the palace. We strolled with purpose through the cavernous halls. The closer we got to the throne room, the more guards we found on patrol. Recognizing the deity of myth at my side, reactions varied from shock to terror. Most dropped to their knees, and none dared to challenge our approach. They said a towering gold-plated doors marked the end of the road. We pushed them open. This was it. The audience of the emperor and his court. His majesty was an unassuming man, short in stature and simple in appearance. But there was a certain regality in the way he carried himself. The royal leader's eyes fixed first on the captain Nathan, and then on me. His countenance turned to a skull in an instant. You! You're that scientist who attacked the church! Emperor Dolan turned his attention to the human. My lord, I am so sorry for this heretic slander and unbelief. I assure you, we will punish him to the highest degree of the law. Nathan waved his hand dismissively. Punish him? Please do not. He speaks the truth. A series of gasps echoed through the chamber. The Emperor shared a glance with his advisors, as though certain that he had misheard the human. My lord, not to question your divine knowledge, but you realize this man has claimed that you are not gods. Nathan chuckled. Yes, and I'm inclined to agree with him. Keshev can explain things, perhaps better than I. Please listen to what he has to say. All eyes turned towards me. Words would not do the human justice, but I hoped that I could convey the truth and the wonder 
of it all. I understand more now than I did when I looked up with skeptical eyes. They would tell you themselves they are not gods. They are human. But after seeing their greatest marvels up close, I know it is not that simple. These are a people who built wings of steel to travel the heavens and boxes of lightning to communicate instantly across any distance. They stare death and nature in the face, and they laugh because they know they can cheat both of them. Most importantly, they shaped us from dust. The humans were not born gods, but through their creation, they have become them. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1466. Story number one. Soldiers don't win wars, food does. Written by Incrediblis Ha. An army marches on its stomach. A famous human general. Humans, the weakest species relative to its size. Administrators and architects bar none and masters of nature and war. That last title seems the most odd. Humans are weak, their bodies frail, their strength pathetic. So how can it be that these little mammals from Sol 3 have managed to become masters of war? Logistics. The first time we heard it, we were confused. What does administration and industry have to do with the strength of a soldier in wartime? Besides, of course, providing them with the arms needed. We had our war cardinals, whose job it was to make sure supplies arrived to our allies and holy spy masters to hinder supplies from arriving to the enemy. But the individual strength of a soldier added far more than supplies. Most of our soldiers fought with texels and were clad in great armor. Plasma and kinetic weapons could not penetrate this armor, and thus melee was the most effective option. This is why humans are so woefully outmatched, or so it seemed. When the warrior pope called people of the Foveni pathetic to war, it seemed to be an easy and righteous victory. We were mistaken. When the humans caught wind of what was happening, instead of attempting to launch a preemptive strike, they waited. The humans, renowned for their architecture, redesigned their planets to be massive kill zones with wastelands where there were previously lush green fields. They had hid mines, readied artillery, and prepared the fleet. The human fleet was brutal, quick, and efficient. The only way we beat it was by sheer numbers. Still, the human fleet bothered our vessels, and many transports were intercepted. What is notable is that human ships were always high-tech, repaired, ready, and loaded. They were never caught off guard. We pushed through human space with apparent ease, and was until we hit the human planet Nova Lothangia. There were fortifications so great it shocked our commanders. However, this was not our greatest problem. The human fleet which had appeared weak had appeared in full force. Our transports, which due to the vast swaths of territory we took, already had to travel for a long time, were now also harassed by human vessels. The unprotected industry and agri-worlds near the former human Foveni border were raided, looted, and erased. This was, however, not the only issue that we were facing. 
And besides the massive fortifications, raided supply lines, and crumbling economy, we were facing another foe. Our own conquered populace. The humans managed to incite rebellions against nations that we'd previously conquered to devastating effect. The worlds like Spovelli and Ravani and Vorinio were swiftly thrown into chaos and disorder. We could crush these rebellions, yes, but it did affect our logistics, which were already a mess. However, the humans would still fall, after all. We held a massive advantage, our melee troops. The humans were weak and dishonorable, and they would welcome the reign of warrior probe Trakastiki, the 9,546,456th. So instead of actually facing us, they built fortifications so great, cut off our supply lines with so much prejudice, and waited so long. We ended up starving. There, the fifth crusading chapter was weak, starving, and no match for the humans. Regular guns could not penetrate great armor, but field cannons could. Artillery did their job, and soon we had to surrender. Our economy was crumbling, and humanity had lost only their smallest, least productive systems. We lost an entire bishopric chapter, and the humans took minimal casualties. The humans swiftly reconquered the lost systems, and our great nation would eventually fall to the hordes of rebellious subjects and constant human raiding. The humans always were ready due to their superior intelligence, were always supplied due to their superior logistics, and were always in better position due to their superior architecture. Gattacity's account of the First Humanitas War. End of story. Story number two. S.A.R. Written by Shock Lineart. Kadra woke to the sound of digging. This was... She didn't actually know how long it had been. Days, she knew that. But beyond that, the shattered remains of what had once been her home shifted and creaked, and then a shaft of light, real light, from the sun pierced the darkness. She had been found. Her relation was short-lived as the unmistakable silhouette of a human eclipsed the light. Those damned humans! Talks must have broken down and war had broken out. As if they took her, well, death was probably the least of her concerns. Kadra did, however, take a small amount of comfort in the human's rage at her passing outright as the last piece of rubble was removed. The human had been denied their prize, at least. No, 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 stay with me, ma'am, come down Jenkins was not having a good day. He was supposed to be search and rescue, damn it, not search and recovery. He'd pulled seven vox from the disaster that had once been a bustling village, and the triage tent had slapped a black label on every single one. Dead. But uh, there was value in recovering the deceased. Hopefully, it would at least give this lady's family, should any remain, some sense of closure. Jenkins carefully loaded the vox lady onto the stretcher and, with the help of another SAR member, made his way towards the triage tent. Jenkins had pinged a message from Starside. Jenkins, sir. Good morning, Jenkins, replied a smooth but obviously robotic voice. It was Benny, the AI assigned to the group. Benny continued, Remember how you asked me just, uh, what the feck happened here? I think I have an answer. I've been in contact with my Vox counterpart, and we have made the following observations. 
Okay. Jenkins could barely remember anything before four hours ago, but let Benny prattle on. Observation. The landscape around this area seems to be composed of calcified remains of billions of microscopic organisms. In layman's term, an extraterrestrial variant of limestone. Observation. The rain on this world is ever so slightly acidic. Observation. The debris field is significantly smaller, around 30%, than the mountain that once stood over this village would suggest. Hypothesis. Over many years, the rain carved out a massive cavern system in a nearby mountain. Well, what was once a mountain anyway? This cavern grew unnoticed or unheeded until the mountain's structural integrity was compromised and the entire thing collapsed in a massive landslide. That's horrible. I, I know and I agree. Anyway, now I'll let you get back to your work. Uh, Ta-ta. When was that? Benny disconnected and Jenkins was left alone with his thoughts once more. At least now... They were at the triage tent. The box doctor descended on the patient, still lying, unmoving, on the stretcher. One week ago, talks were going poorly. Ambassadors from humanity and the Vox had been trying to hammer out an agreement on mineral rights in the system, but a mutual lack of trust was once again getting in the way. Things were going so badly, it looked like it might boil over into a trade war, if not an out-and-out conflict. Part of the reason for the distrust was historical. Both the Vox and humanity had been screwed over multiple times, and neither was particularly keen on letting it happen again. The Vox ambassador had just been ready to tear into a human counterpart when an aide had whispered in her ear and showed her a report. The Vox ambassador had then turned to a very unhealthy color, as the blood had drained from her face. That, uh, that doesn't look good. What's wrong, ambassador? The human ambassador had queried, We'll have to leave things here for now. A mountain has somehow collapsed and buried the largest village in one of our colonies, the Vox had replied. Okay, lead the way. Everyone pack it up. Get ready to move. Lead the... Your assistance is not required. This is strictly an internal, with all due respect, ambassador. Stuff it, the human had replied. The longer we stick around talking, the more of you people die. I know it, you know it. We have a search and rescue team attached to our fleet. If nothing else, it'll be more hands available. Your people are in need, and humanity intends to answer. The Vox looked somewhat taken aback, but relented. Fine, let's go. This is an adjustable wrench, the chief engineer had cried to his audience. Turn the screw to, well, uh, adjust the size appropriately, and remember lefty-loosey, righty-tighty. Also, in your kit is a roll of duct tape and a can of WD-40. If it's loose and shouldn't be, tighten it. And if it's moving and it shouldn't, duct tape it. If it's not moving and it should be, WD-40. This concludes the crash course in human engineering systems. Get to it. If we were going to make this work, extreme measures were going to have to be taken. Indeed. The call had gone out and everyone who wasn't involved in actually flying the ships or part of SAR had been press-ganged into engineering. This exact scene was playing out in every human ship and likely something similar in every Vox ship as well. The combined human Vox fleet was going to push their ships to their absolute limits to cut down on travel time as much as possible. The chief engineer even put his hat over the thermal readout screen so nobody would fret about just how far into the red they were pushing things. And it had worked. 
the overlapping warp fields and redlining the engines had pushed the combined fleet to a record-shattering and mind-melting 2,500 C. But while FTL communications were near instant, FTL travel was much slower. It had taken a full week to cross the 50-ish light-years to Vox Planet. Now, Jenkins wiped the sweat from his brow and drained a water bottle as the doctor worked. The SAR specialist looked up in a rough direction of the fleet. If he had had a thermal scope, he suspected that it would look as though a second star had appeared in the system. Indeed, as soon as the fleet entered normal space, they had frantically deployed every radiator they had, and in short order, said radiators glowed dully. Jenkins strongly doubted that any of the ships would ever exceed 10C under their own power again. They definitely would need a tow home. A sound made Jenkins turn around. It was a doctor applying a triage sticker to the lady. Yellow, in need of care, but would probably live. Jenkins smiled to himself. He'd done it. He had saved a life. Jenkins grabbed an entry stretcher and headed back out to look for more survivors. His day had just gotten a little bit better. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1467 Historical Recreation Written by Eddie Eddie Humans are a strange species. Let me tell you a story of how I got involved in human history. I didn't make it, or even affect it, but I am now a part of it. Written into stories and legends. See, it all started at a bar, upon Station 2 above Termaris. I was in a bar listening to a pair of humans complaining about the fact that it had been a long while since they'd been to a proper tourney. At the time, I didn't know what that word meant. My translator lacked the function to understand it. But the way they said it, and the other things they talked about, caught my interest. I asked them why they'd not attempted to set one up here, or on the planet below. The two of them looked at one another, and promptly set about arranging such a thing. I was kept abreast of the ongoing events, and continually was shocked as to the things required. Metal armor. Non-combat or power armor, but plates of metal worn over padded cloth. And even more armor, made in tiny links of steel. Weapons that would have no place in a modern battlefield. Swords and maces and other things besides that I still do not know the name of, nor can I pronounce. More drink than the entire station could drink in half a year, and more besides. A year and a half later, the station was inundated with humans of all shapes and sizes, color and creed. Some were dressed in a finery of the likes I'd never seen. Oh, I'd seen silks and lace before. Rich human traders oft wore them, but not like this. Flowing gowns and dresses, outfits of bright color, and all things of the like. It was a spectacular showing of human craftsmanship. Then came the tramping, clanking thunder. A ship had docked, and from its guts came a good five hundred humans, clad in the same battle plate I'd seen my friends making ready, marching in order and ranks like a formal army. I have to say, the noise they made rang in my ears for a few days after. The deck plates shook from the weight of their armor. At their head marched a man in black and white tabard with a red symbol on it, holding a flag high, the only one amongst them who had his helmet off. Every human who'd arrived carried with them food or drink or both, 
Some arrived, carrying bow and handing over meats to be roasted. Others, dressed in fine silks and outlandish outfits, offered what they claimed were foreign delicacies, but were just simple bakeries and cakes. But they were received with joy and thanks, nonetheless. There were greetings exchanged between old friends, and old rivalries were renewed. It was less than twenty minutes before the first fight started. I got to witness what would soon be occurring all across the station in designated areas. Someone insulted someone else's uh, dame, which I soon learned was a name for a female partner. And very quickly, swords were drawn and steel met steel. And was it an experience? A fight more brutal and visceral than I had seen in my entire life. My species is known for its warlike tendencies and the fact that we are quick to fight. But this fight, just watching it, was exciting. My blood boiled and I itched to get involved. But I knew that even with my hide and retractable claws, those steel blades would break my bones and worse. It only lasted a few moments, as several other humans in armor dragged them apart and told them both to wait for the arenas to be set up. A station, built to deal with six to 7,000 people, suddenly had an extra 16,000 people turn up. The corridors were flooded and every space was used. Cargo storage was converted into a titanic food hall, the metal walls covered in thin wooden planks, a huge fake fire set up to cast light and warmth. Tables stretched the length of the entire place with massive benches on either side. Food and drink flowed freely. Gyms were converted into combat arenas, and it didn't take long for the ring of steel on steel to sound out and echo through the halls. A siren called to all of those who wanted to join or watch. The park was used for archery and huge tents were set up. For more drinking, eating, and dancing. There were people selling things to one another, trading and sharing stories. When asked where everyone would sleep, there was a lot of shrugging and looking around. The answer, in the end, was anywhere there was space. In tents, on benches, on tables, on the floor, about the fire. Some set up more tents in the park and slept there. Others returned to their ships and slept there. I was told that this would only last three or four days, yet it felt longer. It was as if the station was no longer in space, but was someplace long ago in human history. A sudden spate in a history that was not my own. Time blurred together. I found myself dragged along here and there as the world around me became a place from long ago. I saw other non-humans looking as lost as me. Some looked scared and hid in their homes. Others looked as if they were just another human madness, tired and worn down. Yet a few, like me, had a shine in their eyes, looked excited and interested, asking questions and trying anything they could. I attempted archery. My species lacked significant depth perception, so while I could draw the bow easily, I struggled to aim properly. Other things I tried was foam fighting, where rather than actual weapons, we used sticks of hardened foam and war padding. I fell in love and started to ask about how I could join in actual combat. Once the fight was over, my foe insisted on dragging me for a drink and a meal. We shared a table. It wasn't long before more joined us. 
some in armor, some in silks, others in chain, and a few more in bright purple shirts with crew printed across them. They were called marshals and seemed to be in charge of the whole affair. We drank, talked, and ate as well. Stories were told of other places and other times, but all of the past. For this was not the place for modern tales. I shared my species' folktales and received stories in kind. I know not how long we talked for, but when we parted ways, the station's lights were dim and the human alcohol had affected me far more than I expected. Eventually, I gave up on my struggle to reach my small apartment, but rather found a warm spot by a fire and slumped down to sleep. I was awoken by rough shaking, had a splitting headache, and felt as if Sarsnek had made a burrow into my mouth. Though, the objects that accompanied my awakening lessened my annoyance. A large wooden plate with food upon it, parts I couldn't identify, black ripe bread, thick cheese, fried meats, and beans. I thanked whoever had given me the plate, but they'd moved on to awaken the next person and pass them their own breakfast. I'm lucky my digestive tract is akin to humans in that I can consume almost everything they can, excluding chocolate and certain very strong spices. So I tore into the meal with gusto. As I ate and drank water going around, I could feel the pain in my head lessening. That day proceeded like the last. Or was it one before that? I cannot remember. But that weekend, I felt as if I'd found something that sang in my blood. It was not just brutal combat, but there was honor and kindness. You couldn't just fight anyone. You had to fight those of equal standing. No bullying the weak or ganging up on the strong just to bring them down. There were other competitions, challenges of craftsmanship, art, poetry, and more. It became a matter of mastery and skill. I attended these two, awed at what these humans could produce with such ancient tools. Skills honed over decades came to shine. Well, I was no poet nor artist, but I was a station engineer and I knew how to work metal. It was then I understood what called to me so. Nothing here was made by nanoforge or matter printer, but all by hand and skill and strength. Everything was a display of mastery in one form or another. It was at these competitions I found this was also a recreation of history in action. There were lords, ladies, dukes and dames. There was an order to things, titles and names. Humans took on personas and actions had different meaning here than they would elsewhere. I was excused from most of it due to being a newcomer, but I tried, and I was thanked for it. When it was all over, I awoke on the Monday morning feeling out of place and out of sorts. When it was time to go, everyone packed up and left, as if suddenly there was a time and needed to leave as quickly as possible. Once everyone was packed up, there was little left to indicate they'd ever been, beyond a few stray arrow fletchings and a rather nasty dent in one of the war plates where someone had missed a weapon strike and hit a soft spot. It ended up being my job to fix it, ironically. I felt as if a part of me had been left behind in that fantastic place, so I asked my friends if it would be happening again, and they laughed. Supposedly, next year we'd be doing it again, though on a different station, with a bit more space since they didn't expect that much response. I asked if I could come to properly participate this time. 
They said it was fine, but they needed to train me, and I needed my own armor, which was fine by me. That's how I got involved in human history. Every year we go out, and for a weekend, my friends and I are no longer a station engineer, an accountant, and a dockport manager. But we're a band of knights, brothers in arms, and we're our own stories carved in skill and steel, and more than a little foolishness and luck. End of story. Tales from Outer Space, 1468. Story number one. The Conqueror, written by Adept Bubbles. I am an oracle. I serve only the royal court and the emperor himself. Ayat, ruler of the heavens. The will of the divine, the final king, the chosen one. Though his subjects know him by one title. The Conqueror. I peer into the weave, untangling the strands of fate. I see what has happened and what will happen. I see the destinies of all. Some choose to accept their fate, some reject it. Fate does not care. It is indifferent. None can escape it. My emperor approaches me. I see in my mind's eye the strands of fate flowing from him. They are many, each shining brightly with his future. He speaks to me, Oracle, I seek conquest. The strands grow brighter. My spymasters come to me with news of a new race, a new subjects. They call themselves humans. The great fleet is ready. We will conquer. My mind's eye navigates the weave, untangling the possibilities. Would you like to hear your fate? I asked him. Yes! At his command, I dive into the weave. I follow the strands to their sources, uncovering the truth. Your fate is now written. Your battles will be glorious. Victory is assured. About my emperor, and he turns to leave. As fate wills it he says. The strands grow brighter. It is not long after the beginning of the war. As was written, victory is assured. The humans are no match for the conqueror and his great fleet. As the battle rages, I reach out. I see the strands spread out in front of me. They point to only one conclusion. One of the strands flicker. The war has lasted longer than most, and my emperor addresses me. The humans are great warriors. Our battles are truly glorious. Soon we will be victorious, and they will make for stronger subjects. I ask him again, would you like to hear your fate? Yes! I open my mind's eye. I see the strands clearly. There are fewer of them now, an almost imperceptible difference. The path... Is still clear, I reply. Victory is assured. The war has turned. My emperor is losing ground. For every world he takes, two of our own fall. He approaches me once again, hanging his head low in exhaustion. I seek your counsel, Lorigor. Once again, I ask him the same question I always have. Would you like to hear your fate? Yes. Again. I reach into the weave, and again, the strands of fate lead me to the same answer. 
Victory is assured, I tell him. His expression darkens. Do not lie to me, Oracle. I see only the truth, I tell him. The weave does not lie. You would reject fate. Realization crosses his face, and his anger vanishes. No, I would not. I apologize. As he turns to leave, I see a strand attached to him flicker and disappear. The Conqueror's final stand. The humans had pushed back our armies all the way to the seat of the Empire's power. My Emperor and his most trusted advisors were gathered. He addresses me in front of his advisors, shouting, and the sounds of battle could be heard outside the chambers. Please, he says. Would you like to hear your fate? Yes. There were only a handful of strands attached to him now, each one dimmer and faint. They pointed to the same conclusion they always had. Your victory is assured. Your fate is inevitable. How can that be? He shouted. They are knocking on the palace gates. My grand army has been overrun. A loud crash could be heard at the entrance of the chambers, and then a bright flash. The war had been lost. My emperor and his advisors captured. The great fleet destroyed. His armies overrun. An alien approaches me. The other guys tell me that you can see the future, it says. I reply, I am an oracle. I peer into the weave, untangling the strands of fate. I see what has happened and what will happen. I see the destinies of all. Huh. I ask it a question. The same question I asked my emperor all those times. Would you like to hear your fate? The alien sat silent for a moment before answering, No! All around me, I could see through my mind's eye the strands that connected this alien to the weave flicker and die, one after another. In their place, new strands began to take form, far more than I could count, and all woven into a tangle far too complex to ever hope to unravel. They all glowed with an intensity that I had never seen before. We make our own fate. End of story. Story number two. The Job, written by Chijinta. Jason blinked as he stared around at the pale off-white walls that seemed to glow from within. He was strapped down, naked in a warm, smooth metal chair. He gave a moment to glance at the tiny, soft body. Gray that stood in front of him, therefore turning back to glance about the room. His little bastards wanted to probe him. There wasn't much he could do to stop them, after all. Glancing back at the little dude, Jason frowned. Yeah, that didn't translate well. Uh, can you try that again? He asked. For its part, the great turned its head and seemed to focus on something outside of Jason's line of sight before it turned back to him. I apologize. The translator seems to be distorted. It was my attempting to translate into all 7,000 languages on your planet at once. I'm unaware if you can communicate across several languages, but please keep the cross speed to a minimum to reduce translation contamination. The Grey explained as Jason blinked and almost laughed. That might be a little problematic, he said. Now the small alien's look, he sighed before continuing. English, uh... Is an amalgam language. Uh, we tended to bludgeon other languages over the head in dark alleys and shake them down for loose adverbs at night. He explained before shrugging in his seat, but um, I can promise to try my best. The alien blinked once more before nodding. 
That would be acceptable. We are here on a time-sensitive issue and would like to request your assistance. Uh, top tip for you, knocking someone out, kidnapping them, strapping them naked to a chair is a, a rather poor way to ask for help. Most of those actions are actually crimes. He said with a sigh before there was a flash of light and Jason found himself back in his living room, fully clothed with a short tumbler of sipping whiskey over ice in his hand. He stared across at the little man now sitting on the lazy boy that he'd gotten for cheap when his friend's uncle had died in it. Apologies, but we anticipated that you'd be less than helpful if we teleported into your house at night. Our simulation AI predicted an 83% chance of lead poisoning becoming our primary cause of death in such an event. Any other form of contact would have likely been laughed off as a prank or a joke of some sort and dismissed out of hand. We could not allow that to happen. We are on a mission of grave importance. Thinking the situation over, Jason had to agree that they seemed to have a pretty good idea of his responses. So he took a sip of the whiskey and sighed. Fine. What's so important that you had to wake me up and drag me out of my sleep to help you with? The greet of Ash, the Grey said, cocking his head to the side for a moment before continuing. The Devourer, it is consuming our planet. We beg of you to help us, the Grey said with a bow of its bulbous head. Jason blinked and took another sip, and as he tried to think through what was happening, I don't know what you heard, but I'm pretty sure that you got the wrong guy, he said, before setting the drink aside and sighing again. What is this uh, devourer, and why me? When we searched your databases, you were found to have the best in-context title to our needs. As for the Devourer, it is a fiendish flora that has overrun our homes and is consuming the lifeblood of our planets. It was first brought to our home as an exotic plant from your world, but we were not aware of the damage that it would cause. Reaching over, Jason picked up a glass once again. Do you know what it's called? He questioned as he closed his eyes and prayed to any higher deity that might hear him that it wasn't what he thought it was. Katsu. Draining the glass. Jason set it back on the side table and tried not to scream. All right, looks like I'm on the job. Let me get my stuff. Forcing himself to his feet, Jason headed for the garage. On the side of a faded gray pickup truck was printed a rather cheesy image of a madly grinning man swinging a weed eater as he sat astride a red and white rocket. Beneath it, in tightly printed words, was the advertisement, Jason Tanner, Galactic Groundkeepers Incorporated. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1469 Story number one. Diplomacy and Yes. Written by Lords of Jupe. For six months in a row, the Core World Senate had been deadlocked on an issue of expansion versus colonialism. And for six months, the single deciding vote had fallen day after day to the exact same delegates. The Vry, the Clist, and the humans. Six months of loggerhead situations had worsened every aspect of life in the Senate, tainting other commissions and committees, with no real end in sight. Until a member of the initiating process, Representative Malai Faroe, approached the human consulate on his own, no vanguard, security detail, and only his own token weapon badge of office in hand, who then waited patiently for 16 hours to hold a private meeting with the human delegation spokesperson, Cheryl Anton Willits, renowned for her finesse and periodic acts of generosity. 
The meeting was scheduled still. Malai Farah waited, patient as a tide, and was admitted on the second day. Still clad in their somewhat studied uniform and entered the private meeting space. There they took the offered seat and accepted the neutral beverage, remarking positively on the tea being served that day. Humans could reliably provide exceptional beverages, and their teas were often at the top of every trade delegation's requests and covert bribe lists. You showed remarkable restraint, Representative Farrow, in this unique meeting request, Cheryl said, her tone polite, features appearing careworn, despite the usual human tendency to both remain uncaring of the ravages of age as well as eschewing unnatural cosmetic efforts. That struck me as something to take note of and give attention to, which I suspect was your point. Then she raised her own beverage, a cup of water with only a slice of citrus fruit native to the world hosting their community. To this Malay Farah nodded gravely and said, It was intentional, because I know that humans appreciate theatrics. With a small tone of mirth in his quasi-feline features, his race, the Gar Alta, were descended from the fastest, most adaptive feline-themed creatures in the same way that humans had descended from primates save that the tail was retained for them, and the small, twitchy ears were slowly being absorbed into a streamlined presence of their skulls. To that end, I won't apologize, because this meeting, it has untold implications, all of which center on the survival of my species and culture, in roughly that order. He then set his cup of tea down and waited, demonstrating that strange patience. We have analyzed the needs of the Gauta and determined what you need, Cheryl said, looking flatly at Malai Farrow, her hands placid in a folded pattern in front of her, resting on the desk's surface. This perspective. Of the nineteen worlds you wish to, and this term is used euphemistically, please understand, Annex. Thirteen of them are occupied by sapiens, either petitioning for membership in the Core World Senate, or soon to qualify. We interpret it as either to be a preamble to genocide or as a creation of an artificial voting block. Then she smiled, gesturing to the tea in front of Malai Farrow. Controlling his anger, the representative avoided showing his curled teeth, and instead settled for a throatier tone, one bordering on hostility. Clearly, he began, a misunderstanding is a play. Those worlds are lush with resources necessary for the continued growth and, subsequently, the survival of my species. Without them, we would have to strip mine a dozen colonies and thus ruin their ecologies. Is it not the Earth itself which your people are most ashamed of for much the same reason? The smile he offered was far from friendly. The fate of the human homeworld was a moral and economic lesson and one studied briefly by his own team of experts prior to the meeting. Regarding him with stories dating back 200 cycles to when humanity first went into the stars and grasped their future. What they left behind was a bitter, poisoned place, filled with gashes flooded with trash, cities emptied of potential, and skies choked with the final birds into silent death. Again, Cheryl said, this is a misunderstanding, although you do have a valid point, for the wrong reason. And with that, she then poured a decanter of tea directly onto the floor next to her desk, never breaking eye contact with Malai Farrow. Her expression, stony, 
Ice cold, toned crisp and empty as space itself. This was once worth more lives than exists within your entire genus. This was a poison to our souls. This is a simple beverage. Now fought over in countless cafes and community halls. It was the death of untold millions. When it was empty, she placed a decanter on her desk. Wordless confusion settled into Malai Pharaoh's face. He surprisedly blinked away. Yet, before he spoke, she continued to address him. Our species, we humans, once trafficked in this, this, uh, tea. We shipped it, at some expense, of course, after extracting territory and loyalty from countless cultures, all because it produced both money and dominion. If it could be grown, it was forced to be grown, and if it could be harvested, the locals were forced to sell it. All to one very slim number of traffickers. And if the locals rebelled, there was a reply. She then knocked the decanter to the floor, shattering it into a thousand sharp shards of clear, perfect crystal. They would die by the thousands, over and over. We demonstrated this point, and thus we kept the idea and term in mind when we see other bullies. And then she smirked, looking directly into Malai Pharaoh's now fearful eyes. She leaned forward, hovering over the edge of her desk, glaring at him, seeing him wince and shrink back in his chair. Gunboat diplomacy. A funny phrase, that one. It means, if you don't do what we say, we'll, uh, you'll see what we do once. She grinned madly. The infamous human expression, much a cause for concern in every strategy and tactical meeting. To see it in a time of focus and violence or of risk was to know. Death was uncomfortably close. No other sapien could say, with clarity, that an expression conveyed so much menace. No claw, tooth, or nor sheathed spur demonstrated such zeal for the stuff. She then settled back and gestured to Malai Pharaoh. Take this message to your people. That is the biggest, meanest bullies who ever has survived. They bred and produced a family line. Tell them that I am a finished product of what you persist in calling a death world. And that from that death world, our term gunboat diplomacy, it carries weight and is still as sharp a spear as in our arsenal. Then she nodded to Malai Pharaoh. Tell me that if they make their move, we will not be standing idly at the sides, wringing our hands. We will drink their fecking tea, and they will harvest their fecking tea, and we will force them to sell their fecking tea. And they have until they stop being afraid of us to understand what we might possibly mean by their fecking tea. Malai Pharaoh slowly rose, his pants now damp, teeth chittering nervously, and nodded, eyes wide in terror. Oh! He paused, his hand shaking, cup and his grip. In his mouth opened in a rictus and a fearful surrender. Before you go, Cheryl Anton Willett stood and loomed over him, her height only sixteen centimeters taller, yet she might as well have been a battle station. Drink your fucking tea! All he could do was nod and obey, then finally understand what she meant. Four hours later, the petition for expansion was removed with prejudice, and the worlds were formally annexed by the Terran Collective in the region, with a remarkable vote of support from the Gar Alta, who simply and politely requested a commission tax on any tea futures which may come from those respective homeworlds. Ratified and granted, the ledger said. Men of Story Story number two it's round, right? Written by Shock Lionheart. Look, human, your star soul, 
Mercury, Venus, your moon, Mars, Ceres, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto. All of them are spherical. Yes. That's right. Oh, so logically, it makes the most sense for Earth to be flat. The alien interrogators slammed their six-fingered hands on the desk. Two hours, and not one iota of progress. Worse, it was abundantly clear the human wasn't trolling. The human honesty truly believed what they were saying. That arguably made it so much worse. Okay, let's try this. If the Earth were flat, Sol would illuminate the entire side evenly. That's clearly not what's happening. Your planet has a day side and a night side. The night side is such because the planet is now between the night side and the star. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And the rotation is smooth because Earth is round. Nope, Earth's flatter than a pancake. Fine! How do you explain time zones then? How do you explain seeing a sunset, calling someone in another time zone, and disagreeing on the sun's relative position to your respective bodies? That's all just an optical illusion. Are you kidding me? An optical illusion? How? You know, you're trying way too hard to convince me of this Earth's round nonsense. You must be working for them. I'm not gonna go along with it. I know your tricks. The interrogator's frustrated scream turned the heads four decks away. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1470 The Symbol, written by Roy Le Diamond The Great Tribunal, 15 galactic standard days after the Battle of Earth, the trial of General Cawthon. The Garthinian general gazed up at several alien figures above him, he never imagined he'd be in this place. This large and dark chamber was used to punish war criminals and debrief leaders after military disasters. He was still attempting to figure out which one of these brought him here. Earth was a disaster in every way. Never had a general, especially one of his prestige, been beaten so badly by primitive natives of a planet. Undoubtedly, the tribunal would strip him of his rank unless he could give them a very, very good reason as to how he'd lost. It would be even harder, with the 42nd Galactic War still raging on around them. There is a concept, he started, one universal among life. An instructional fear of those that you are unfamiliar with. Most individuals can mitigate or get over this fear, mostly. But it always sticks with them. The sphere is what led to our gravest mistake. I was a general in the prime of my career, conqueror of worlds and destroyer of our enemies. I defeated the Zanzar and Ocnir, and dismantled the Koro city in Paris, single-handedly. I was the one that repelled the great scourge that was the Gohantri invasion from the Hodrani galaxy. I was Orion Galaxy's presenter. Yet, here I stand before you now, O oh Great Tribunal, to borrow a phrase from the very creatures that led me here. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. It was supposed to be a glorious, unstoppable invasion, much like the many I had led before. The primitives that called Talian Sea their home were nothing but insects under my hoof. To be slaughtered like the insignificant race they were, Earth, as they called it, was a strategic point in the galaxy. 
The Sajini and the Calypsi had taken all systems around it. Earth, the insignificant rock that it was, was the only way that we could push behind enemy lines. It would have brought an end to the conflict, to seven systems from the Calypsi capital, the last unsuspected bastion. We would slip in right between them. The primates had primitive weapons and armor. The guns used lead and copper projectiles accelerated by explosives at above sonic speeds. Their armor was ceramic and metal held in place by tough fabrics and used to store additional ammunition and equipment. Ingenious, for sure, but uh, primitive. In hindsight, this cleverness should have been taken as a warning to their creativity. The creatures themselves had several natural advantages that we were unaware of. They can rapidly kill their bodies off through a process called sweating, meaning that they can out-endure even our lightest of infantry. They have a remarkable throwing ability, one that far surpasses any that we've ever seen, and they exploited this to a terrifying degree with what they called grenades, which were explosive spheres that they throw into our formations. They also had another advantage I failed to account for, one common on their planet, but unprecedented in the galaxy. This advantage, far more than any other, was what I believe gave them the edge. It is impossible for me to properly explain myself, however. Instead, I wish to show you. Ashland, Ohio, two years after the beginning of the Battle of Earth. The Battle of Ashland, 0500 hours. Justin ducked into a mud as artillery burned the field around him. For once... He was happy it was raining. The mud seemed to affect the aliens far more than him and his allies. He expected to be back home soon, but an alien invasion was not the welcome home party he'd expected. If they pushed past Ashland County, they'd have a clear shot at Columbus. Jenkins and Dunovich had already been hit. He could only hope that they were still alive. He picked his rifle back up and bolted through the field. Gunther and McMillan weren't just ahead. He knew Freer Field was lost as he had made his way into the forest. He looked back and felt an intense feeling that he betrayed his family as he watched his little brother's old school burn to the ground. But he pressed on. Miller, get down! Justin ducked into a ditch as soon as he heard Macmillan's voice. A ball of plasma exploded above him. He could feel the heat burning into his son's side. As soon as the heat dissipated, Justin got up and bolted further into the woods. While the forest was still very small, it would provide enough cover for them to retreat. He hated falling back on his home, but he knew he had no choice. Ashland, Ohio, the Battle of Ashland, 0700 hours. Justin peeked out of the blinds in the window at an old classroom that they were posted up in. He had fond memories of this class. The teacher here taught physics. He remembered him as a kind and goofy man. The kind of person you could trust with your worst life problems. He thought back to the words he once told him. You can visit any time, Jim. Justin could only hope that he'd survived and escaped the city. The high school, while not ideal, made a better defensive spot than most. And the second floor had a good enough view of the outside. When they had arrived... They had managed to link up with a few other squads. They informed him and his team that Jenkins and Danovich were dead. It was just the three of them now. Justin could see movement across the street, just behind some houses. 
Macmillan, I got contact. Three platoons moving across the street from the Purple House. Three? Yeah. They're moving into a parking lot, heading this way. Okay, Gunther? Yes, sir. Gunther responded attentively. Post up in the neighboring room. Yes, sir. Justin could see the soldiers moving into position around the building. He cracked the window and pointed his gun out, waiting for the command. Fire! At will! Macmillan relayed. As he posted up in the window on the opposite side of Justin and opened fire. The booming sound of a hundred guns rang out into the parking lot, obliterating the small and exposed alien force outside. Before the smoke could clear, however, a much larger force appeared from behind the houses across the street and began to charge at the building. The school lit up with plasma fire and lead. Fiery balls punched the sides of the building, chipping bricks and mortar out of place to plummet to the ground. Justin picked his targets carefully as to not blow through his ammo, but there were more hostiles pouring in by the second. Macmillan backed away from the window and began to speak into his radio, calling for close air support. Macmillan moved back to the window and continued to fire. Zbat! The sound shook Justin from his focus. He looked to his right and saw Macmillan falling. The world, somehow, seemed to slow down. He ran to his fallen staff sergeant as plasma fire hit around him. Macmillan, come on, man, get the hell up! Justin shouted at the dying soldier. Don't feck with me, get up! Justin was starting to not understand the words that he was saying as the world started getting drowned out around him. Come on, come on, come on, come on! No, 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 don't you fucking die me, bastard! Justin watched as the light slipped from his comrade's eyes, never to return. The Great Tribunal, 15 Galactic Standard Days after the Battle of Earth, the trial of General Corthan. Did you see it, Tribunal? No? How about another example? Hesperia, California, two years after the beginning of the Battle of Earth, the Battle of Victor Valley, 2100 hours. Jose looked up to his overpass. He wasn't sure why. He couldn't see anything, but he heard it. The alien chatter was unmistakable. Halsey, Maria, and Jackson were just behind him, with Parker leading ahead. He couldn't help but pay attention to Maria. He had promised to protect his sister since they were little. Now, as they passed under the main street, he couldn't help but feel that she was in more danger than ever before. Maria, come on, us. Jose whispered back to his sister. Terra es ben hermana. Necesitamos enfoca. Maria replied with annoyance in her voice. She's right, too. Now's not the time, Parker whispered back to them. Move east, up that hill. We'll ambush them. Copy, sir. All of the teammates replied at roughly the same time. Jose moved up the sandy bank to the road, hiding just behind the barrier. His night vision goggles illuminated the world in green as he took aim. Parker and Maria took up the right next to him as the other two moved into position at the other side. Mere seconds passed before the aliens moved past them. As soon as they did, Parker, Maria, and Jose moved behind them, trapping them in an owl as their three humans took cover behind a wrecked car. Open fire! Parker shouted, snapping the aliens' attention to the ambush behind them. The humans opened fire on the helpless alien squad. Jose could now see that there were nine. Four went down immediately, as the other five took cover behind another wrecked car ahead. The two small forces exchanged fire for a few minutes before Hazley and Jackson moved up. Hazley was shot in the shoulder as he popped up to fire on the enemies. Jackson 
holding back and threw a grenade. An alien shot rucked through the air just before the grenade detonated and the group of invaders. Jackson, Lopez, move in to investigate. Jose, stay back. Jose watched as Jackson and Maria pined around the car and eased themselves, confirming that the aliens were dead. Jose and Parker moved to the car to see for themselves as Jackson hurried back to treat Hastie's wounds. Good work, Maria, Jose exclaimed as he hugged his sister, who just smiled back at him with pride. Jose looked down and counted three dead aliens. Three? Only three were here? Too late. Jose watched in horror as an alien appeared from behind the car further up and fired. The plasma bolt ripped into Maria, her proud smile replaced with shock and horror as she fell on top of him. Parker immediately opened fire, dropping the attacker in a single shot. Jose threw his helmet off. The camera caught him holding his sister's corpse as he broke down in tears. He sat broken for minutes before Parker pulled him away as more aliens descended onto them. The grief was quickly demolished in exchange for unbridled and primal rage. Jose threw Parker off of him and faced the platoon of the bastards that killed his sister. He led his rage out in lead and copper and fired his bullets ripping into alien flesh and armor. He vaulted cars and ran towards the attackers. He jumped an ambulance as he drew his knife and dived onto the aliens, tearing his helmet off and ripping into its flesh with his blade. Jose was hit in the arm and leg several times, but didn't care. He drew his handgun and emptied the entire magazine into a nearby soldier, then grabbed his rifle and fired into the platoon. He threw three grenades at them, blowing one of the attackers into chunks of flesh and bone and metal. He looked around at the smoldering wreckage, seeing another alien flee. He unloaded two magazines into the poor bastard dropping it with the first shot. Parker approached cautiously and placed his hands gently on Jose's shoulder as he admired the rifleman's work. The Great Tribunal, 15 galactic standard days after the Battle of Earth, the trial of General Colthan. Colthan stared at the looming figures above him who stared at him with unfeeling perceptors. I hope this demonstrates how dangerous these creatures are. All across the globe, reports flooded in of civilians wiping out entire brigades single-handedly just to defend a child. The Talians possess an instinctive urge to protect each other, not just themselves. We were entirely unprepared for such a force. Everyone we killed made the rest stronger. Every time we killed their leaders, they fought even harder in their leader's name. A martyr, they called them. You see, Tribunal, Talians don't actually die. They transform into a symbol. A symbol the rest will use to keep fighting. A symbol that evokes hope and determination in those around the killed human. Even with a severe technological disadvantage, that hope and determination will still prevail. Talians, or humans as they call themselves, cannot die. And they cannot be broken. End of story. Tales from Outer Space, 1,471. Story number one. Void Sailors, written by Indie Kid 1011. Spaceborn, a concept nearly unheard of by most galactic species. Making portals between planets was how hundreds of races had colonized their second planet. Of course, not to discredit satellites, 
Most species had those, after all. It was easier to see other planets without atmospheric interference. But for us, the Kenantari, about 200 solar cycles ago, came across a pulse. This pulse came from deep space. We assumed it was just background radiation, until one particularly lucky radio operator switched to a usually unused frequency. It was the first time that we'd heard such a collection of sound noise repetitively played with guttural vocalization. As soon as they appeared and heard, they disappeared. We thought it coincidental, after all. As soon as it had appeared, it had left. One hundred cycles ago, at the start of the colonization of the second solar system, the noise came again. We reached out, trying to find this mysterious being or beings. They left before we received a response. They had earned a reputation for their brief appearance. They sailed the void, as we do our oceans. Fifty cycles, we received a message, made in a way we expected. We received a satellite in orbit of our homeworld, and it worked like a bottle filled with a book. They gave us all the information about them, and we could translate none of it. We called out and asked for something more. Then nothing. No noise from the void. Thirty cycles after they gave us our answer, we had established communication with several other species. Just like us, they made portals from planet to planet. Just like us, they had the void sailors' information, but no way to decipher it. Twelve cycles ago, we found them. One of their systems, at least. The planet they seemed to emanate from was deeper in the system. We got to the second planet in the system, and that was when we saw it. The world had a ring around it. Not like any planet that we had a ring or gas or rock, but it was a solid ring built to observe the planet. We found a settlement not far from where we had teleported to, and we established first contact. They called themselves humans, and they welcomed us with open arms. We'd struggled to translate their language. They knew ours long before we had noticed them. The data drones they had left us had not been made for information, but rather to watch us. The information we found was something else. It was what they called their net. With our new knowledge and friends, we listened to them and their songs from the void. They may call themselves humans, but to us, the void is unwelcoming, untouchable by our hands. But they are, they are the void sailors. And we wouldn't dare to change our new status quo. For we walked the soil, and they sailed the seas where only the solar winds blow. End of story. Story number two. The Vengeance of Humanity. Written by Hatchet Hyde. More records have been recorded. Young Carl Poff, official record keeper. First class of the High Library Committee of the Valosia Commerce Union. To start, I should preface that while we call ourselves a commerce union, we are also more than happy to go to war. Our merchant vessels being more akin to warships of other species. To borrow the human expression, we practice gunboat diplomacy in our negotiations, destroying ships that threaten our trade and blockade worlds that would dare to challenge us. It was supposed to be a simple matter. Zux Roth, the Lord Captain, royal class merchant, would blockade the world known as Vulcan, 
destroyed the warships it had, and take control of the assets and resources of the world, enslave and sell the locals if they did not submit. Attention to the inhabitants of Vulcan. Your world is now the property of the Verlusha Commerce Union. Submit to us, and you will be integrated into our society. Resist and become slaves. You have one standard day to respond. Luxroth stated in a smug tone as he broadcast over all standard frequencies. We knew of the humans. They kept to themselves and were rarely seen outside of the solar system. In our hubris, we acted as we always had. Swoop in. Well, it shattered the economy and take what we wanted. No one could stand in our way. We made and sold everything in our part of the galaxy. The only ones that equaled us, the Guthura Alliance. It wasn't long until the human response came. I am High Counselor Sarah of Vulcan. You have entered human space and threatened a Class One garden world. As per the Articles of Interplanetary Diplomacy, you have one standard day to leave our system. The nerve of this primate, Zoxroth stated in his contempt. All stations prepare for combat, Zoxroth stated into his holopad, causing an announcement. Every one of the crew had gotten into positions. The assault team, the ship gunners, the official record keepers, such as myself, got ready for what we had done for millennia. We glassed what we thought were factories, creating weapons and ships, and then glassed what we thought were troops barracks. We took the planet in less than a standard day. We laughed, as this had been the easiest conquest in recorded history. The people would be made slaves. Our economy would surely profit nicely from the new slaves in the markets. It was not long before the transmission from the Guthuri High Command came through. We expected this, as this area of space was close to theirs. I will dispense all formalities and pleasantries. I need to make this point clear. Leave the humans alone. Leave this space as fast as you can. If you have attacked them, surrender immediately. Gotharan, High Commander, stated in what looked to be desperation. As per our treaty, this sector of space is neutral, and we are within treaty law to claim it. Should you declare war on us for this acquisition, we shall sue you for treaty violation. Zofroth replied. You must understand me. We will not go to war. The humans will. The Gutharan High Commander stated. Then the feed was cut. Truly, how far have they fallen to be afraid of these primates? Zoxroth asked me. I laughed with him. We thought it was funny how the mighty Alliance was afraid of these silly humans. Oh, how wrong we were. As it turned out, Vulcan was a civilian world made up of mostly farmers and human civilization. Well, in a word... Unspected, it was an imperial republic, a senate with an emperor at the head. This information came all too late. We had moved on to other worlds in system, and then the nearest human settlement systems, glassing from orbit, then ground troops to mop up the remains and capture slaves. On the fourth system, waiting for us, was a massive fleet of warships, entire asteroids converted into anti-ship gun batteries, what followed next was what I can assure you, genuinely terrifying. The weapons of the human ships tore through our most advanced ships, a mix of lasers melting our hulls and kinetic weapons tearing of vessels apart. Zuxroth ordered his ships to fall back to the previous system and wait for reinforcements. At last, we thought as we emerged from hyperspace, we would be ready this time. No surprising us with your weapons this time. 
Word had been sent to the Velorja Commerce Union. They had ordered us back to the first planet to wait for reinforcements. In a matter of days, the largest fleet of the Velorja Commerce Union had been assembled. One thousand ships ready for war. We would destroy the humans for their insolence. They would no longer be slaves, but cattle for our carnivorous pets. We had prepared to return to the system that we had fled, thinking that was all that they could muster and would not risk chasing us. As we got ready to set off, a human armada, 100 times the size of ours, emerged from hyperspace and immediately began tearing our ships apart. It was a slaughter. The human ships carved a path of death through us. Of the 1,000 ships, only six managed to return home. I now knew why the Gotharan High Commander was so eager to have us leave human space. They were monsters. As frightening as they are in space, on the ground, they are so much more terrifying. Each soldier is in what they call an enhanced strength battle suits. The standard infantry round is 14.5 millimeters by 114 millimeters. Once I had left the ship, I made my way to my private world on the other side of the galaxy. I knew the humans would be coming. I was not, however, expecting such hatred. We had destroyed a peaceful garden world full of families. To them, the ultimate crime. One that they would repay one thousandfold. I watched on Galnet as human soldiers landed on our worlds and destroyed them. Their infantry rifles making short work of our troops. Human heavy weapons, human tanks, human bombers, fighters, and dreadnoughts made ours look like toys. The galaxy watched in horror as this empire of humanity wiped out each of our worlds, getting everyone on them. We expected them to do this to one or two planets as a show of force, make us surrender, but no offer came. Every communication we sent was ignored. Our fleeing and surrendering troops gunned down like animals. When the human flagship Imperial Earth Navy ship Julius Caesar had arrived in our home world, I, we, the galaxy, learned just how hateful the humans were. The human emperor and the senate had ordered magnum interitum, or grand extermination on our species. They showed us what glassing a planet was, if you could even call it that. Hundreds of thousands of nuclear weapons unleashed across our home world, but not even then did they stop. Once everyone is dead, they use kinetic accelerators to fire massive asteroids into Velocia, cracking the crust of the planet, causing the core to spill out. Then they left, without a word, gone like shadows into the night. They returned to their home sector of space. I wish that we had never gone after that sector of space. Curiously, though, in their vengeance, only those of our species and our allies were slaughtered. Slave species had been freed, using their own ships to take them to safe worlds. Most systems would let human ships through, having seen what they could do. To their relief, it was to drop off those that they had freed. I write this as I sit in a refugee camp in the Alliance, my wealth and status gone. Had the Alliance not taken pity on what few of the Velorians remain, I would have surely died in a street gutter or in any way long ago. I hope 
that one day, that this record serves as a warning that we never truly had to warn any new species of humans and why they should be left alone in their little corner of the galaxy. Where I hope they remain. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.